years to the warmongers. The criminals, the liars, the psychopaths. The wolves in sheep's clothing. The ones who have no integrity. They're not fond of responsibility and they have no respect for your rights. You can vote for them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them. About the only thing you can't do is ignore them because they have the guys with the guns and they can have you arrested and thrown in a cage. While some may see them as responsible leaders, we see evil because the ones who are insane enough to think that they can rule the world are always the ones who do. Our, all our society is run by insane people for insane objects, mm. objectives. You yeah, know? Yeah. And I think that's what I sussed when I was 16 and 12 way down the line. But I expressed it differently all through my life. It's the same thing I'm expressing all the time. But now I can put it into that sentence that I think we're being run by maniacs for maniacal mean uh, ends, you know. If, if anybody can put on paper what our government and the American government, etc., and the Russian, Chinese, what they are actually trying to do, you know, and how, what they think they're doing, mm. I'd be very pleased to know what they think they're doing. I think they're all insane. You know, but I'm liable to be put away as insane for expressing that. Yeah. You know, that's what's insane about it. Yeah. This is the story of your enslavement. How it came to be, and how you can finally be free. Like all animals, human beings want to dominate and exploit the resources around them. At first we mostly hunted and fished and ate off the land, but then something magical and terrible happened to our minds. We became, alone among the animals, afraid of death and of future loss. And this was the start of a great tragedy and an even greater possibility. You see, when we become afraid of death, of injury and imprisonment, we become controllable and so valuable in a way that no other resource could ever be. The greatest resource for any human being to control is not natural resources or tools or animals or land, but other human beings. You can frighten an animal because animals are afraid of pain in the moment. But you cannot frighten an animal with a loss of liberty, with torture or imprisonment in the future, because animals have very little sense of tomorrow. You cannot threaten a cow with torture or a sheep with death. You cannot swing a sword at a tree and scream at it to produce more fruit or hold a burning torch to a field and demand more wheat. You cannot get more eggs by threatening a hen, but you can get a man to give you his eggs by threatening him. This human farming has been the most profitable and destructive 
occupation throughout history, and it is now reaching its destructive climax. Human society cannot be rationally understood until it is seen for what it is. A series of farms where human farmers own human livestock. Some people get confused because governments provide health care and water and education and roads, and thus imagine that there is some benevolence at work. Nothing could be further from the reality. Farmers provide health care and irrigation and training to their livestock. Some people get confused because we are allowed certain liberties and thus imagine that our governments protect our freedoms. But farmers plant their crops a certain distance apart to increase their yields and will allow certain animals larger stalls or fields if it means they will produce more meat and milk. In your country, your tax farm, your farmer grants you certain freedoms, not because he cares about your liberties, but because he wants to increase his profits. Are you beginning to see the nature of the cage you were born into? There have been four major phases of human farming. The first phase in ancient Egypt was direct and brutal human compulsion. Human bodies were controlled, but the creative productivity of the human mind remained beyond the reach of the whip and the brand and the shackles. Slaves remained woefully underproductive and required enormous resources to control. The second phase was the Roman model, wherein slaves were granted some capacity for freedom, ingenuity, and creativity, which raised their productivity. This increased the wealth of Rome, and thus the tax income of the Roman government, and with this additional wealth Rome became an empire, destroying the economic freedoms that fed its power and collapsed. I'm sure that this does not seem entirely unfamiliar. After the collapse of Rome, the feudal model introduced the concept of livestock ownership and taxation. Instead of being directly owned, peasants farmed land that they could retain as long as they paid off the local warlords. This model eventually broke down due to the continual subdivision of productive land and was destroyed during the enclosure movement when land was consolidated and hundreds of thousands of peasants were kicked off their ancestral lands because new farming techniques made larger farms more productive with fewer people. The increased productivity of the later Middle Ages created the excess food required for the expansion of towns and cities, which in turn gave rise to the modern democratic model of human ownership. As displaced peasants flooded into the cities, a huge stock of cheap human capital became available to the rising industrialists, and the ruling class of human farmers quickly realized that they could make more money by letting their livestock choose their own occupations. Under the democratic model, direct slave ownership has been replaced by the mafia model, 
The mafia rarely owns businesses directly, but rather sends thugs around once a month to steal from the business owners. You are now allowed to choose your own occupation, which raises your productivity, and thus the taxes you can pay to your masters. Value this time in your life, kids, because this is the time in your life when you still have your choices. And it goes by so fast. When you're a teenager, you think you can do anything, and you do. Your 20s are a blur. 30s, you raise your family, you make a little money, and you think to yourself, what happened in my 20s? 40s, you grow a little pot belly, you grow another chin. The music starts to get too loud. One of your old girlfriends from high school becomes a grandmother. 50s, you have a minor surgery. You'll call it a procedure, but it's a surgery. 60s, you'll have a major surgery. The music is still loud, but it doesn't matter because you can't hear it anyway. The 70s, you and the wife retire to Fort Lauderdale. Start eating dinner at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. You have lunch around 10, breakfast the night before. Spend most of your time wandering around malls looking for the ultimate soft yogurt and muttering, how come the kids don't call? How come the kids don't call? The 80s, you'll have a major stroke. You end up babbling to some Jamaican nurse who your wife can't stand, but who you call mama. Any questions? Your few freedoms are preserved because they are profitable to your owners. The great challenge of the democratic model is that increases in wealth and freedom threaten the farmers. The ruling classes initially profit from a relatively free market in capital and labor, but as their livestock become more used to their freedoms and growing wealth, they begin to question why they need rulers at all. Ah, well, nobody ever said that human farming was easy. Keeping the tax livestock securely in the compounds of the ruling classes is a three-phase process. The first is to indoctrinate the young through government, quote, education. As the wealth of democratic countries grew, government schools were universally inflicted in order to control the thoughts and souls of the livestock. The second phase is to turn citizens against each other through the creation of dependent livestock. It is very difficult to rule human beings directly through force, and where it can be achieved, it remains cripplingly underproductive, as can be seen in North Korea. Human beings do not breed well or produce efficiently in direct captivity. Ah, but if human beings believe that they are free, then they will produce much more for their farmers. The best way to maintain this illusion of freedom is to put some of the livestock on the payroll of the farmer. Those cows that become dependent on the existing hierarchy will then attack any other cows who point out the violence, hypocrisy, and immorality of human ownership. Officers positioned Grant face first on the floor with one officer near his head, a second near his back, and a third officer standing nearby. There appeared to be a brief struggle. Then, a two-year veteran BART officer stands, draws his weapon, and fires. Freedom is slavery, and slavery is freedom. If you can get the cows to attack each other, whenever anybody brings up the reality of their situation, then you don't have to spend nearly as much controlling them directly. Those cows who become dependent upon the stolen largesse of the farmer 
will violently oppose any questioning of the virtue of human ownership. And the intellectual and artistic classes, always and forever dependent upon the farmers, will say to anyone who demands freedom from ownership, you will harm your fellow cows. The livestock are thus kept enclosed by shifting the moral responsibility for the destructiveness of the violent system to those who demand real freedom. The third phase is to invent continual external threats so that the frightened livestock cling to the protection of the farmers. This system of human farming is now nearing its end. The terrible tragedies of modern Western economic systems has occurred not in spite of, but because of, past economic freedoms. The massive increases in Western wealth throughout the 19th century resulted from economic freedoms. And it was this very increase in wealth that fed the size and power of the state. Whenever the livestock become exponentially more productive, you get a corresponding increase in the number of farmers and their dependents. The growth of the state is always proportional to the preceding economic freedoms. Economic freedoms create wealth, and the wealth attracts more thieves and political parasites, whose greed then destroys the economic freedoms. In other words, freedom metastasizes the cancer of the state. The government that starts off the smallest will always end up the largest. This is why there can be no viable and sustainable alternative to a truly free and peaceful society. A society without political rulers, without human ownership, without the violence of taxation and statism. To be truly free is both very easy and very hard. We avoid the horror of our enslavement because it is so painful to see it directly. We dance around the endless violence of our dying system because we fear the attacks of our fellow livestock. But we can only be kept in the cages we refuse to see. Wake up. To see the farm is to leave it. Where am I? In the village. What do you want? Information. Whose side are you on? That would be telling. We want information. 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 You won't get it. By hook or by crook, we will. Who are you? The new number two. Who is number one? You are number six. I am not a number. I am a free man. <laughs>
could speculate about why the rat was so useful. I mean, one thing, it reproduced really fast. Another thing is that people were not affectionate towards rats, so you didn't really need to worry about ethical objections unless something truly horrible was done. And finally, I guess you could see the rat as a metaphor for an animal that is tractable. Running a rat through a maze is a pretty understandable metaphor for most of us of running through life. And in fact, if you look at the history of the maze, it goes back through early Christian and even into Greek societies as kind of a metaphor for life. The, the idea that you somehow wind your way through a maze. Of course, in the Christian tradition, the maze is full of meaning and you're eventually trying to get to God. It's kind of a pilgrim's progress. Whereas in modern uh, society, people like Nietzsche said that you know, life was like a maze that you could never run to the end of. But in the 20th century in American laboratories, the maze was once again adopted as a symbol of hope, not a hope that one could get to God or get to a meaningful life, but the hope that people could actually be controlled in a very scientific manner. That's That social life could be um, remade on the basis of scientific principles. In the roll call of scientific pioneers, few names will summon the passionate controversies that which surrounds B.F. Skinner. His work has led to the formulation of the science of human behavior, which finds behavior to be predictable, therefore controllable. And for this, he has been both applauded and attacked. The science of behavior is based on the principles of operant conditionings. These principles and their practice have recently become known as behavior modification, sacrilege to some because it has to do with methods by which man can shape the behavior of others. But far from being a scheme to control people without their knowledge, it allows man to study and analyze behavior and to apply its healing potential to such fields as education, medicine, and psychology. Behaviorism, as it, as it suggests, is the study of behavior. It's the notion that really all that matters is behavior and not the thought processes that lie behind behavior. And it also is very much a method of control. I'm waiting for it to turn counterclockwise now. And then I reinforce that movement. In behaviorism, there's the whole idea of behavior modification, where you can use various kinds of techniques to modify people's behaviors so that they stop doing what you don't want them to do and they start doing what, what you want them to do. So I think it's the scientific aspect of it and the controlling aspect of it that, that uh, defines behaviorism. The philosophy of behaviorism is deceptively simple. It suggests that organisms can be viewed as flesh and blood machines. Like machines, we require fuel. Like machines, we can be put to work for a specific cause. Like machines, we can be repaired or redesigned for new purposes. 
and like machines, we can be compelled into performing a certain action at the push of a button. The science of human behavior had always intrigued philosophers, but it wasn't until the Enlightenment and the era of capitalist industrialization that men began to think that they could control life forms in the same way they controlled objects. Prior to that, uh, when we think of the Middle Ages, even much of the Renaissance, the idea was that things were interrelated, they were organically a whole. In that sense, the Middle Ages had a lot in common with traditional peasant or folk cultures around the world. Things are seen as uh, basically being a kind of giant web of influence. Everything was like a chain where if you plucked one part, the other part would resonate. That was the previous view, a worldview that had great advantages and also great disadvantages. With the scientific revolution in the 17th century, that view altered in which things were seen as mechanical parts that interrelated. The mechanical philosophy of the 17th century was a very crucial step in the rise of capitalism because capitalism does that. For example, it sees the earth at a distance. It sees the earth as something to be mined and exploited. It sees the earth as dead. So capitalism and mechanical philosophy went together very well. And that, in many ways, made possible the Industrial Revolution, the rise of modernity. And there again, we can say there are great advantages to it, and also great disadvantages to it. Civilizations usually come as a package deal. There's a light side and a dark side. Every civilization believes in its own propaganda, so it tends to emphasize the light side and forgets about the shadows. For the behaviorist, it started with plants. Julius Sachs at the University of Würzburg enumerated a set of tropisms defined as any directed response by an organism to a constant stimulus. An example is the way an ivy plant will turn its leaves toward the window in order to gain exposure to sunlight. Sachs' protege, Jacques Loeb, took it to the next level by creating a stable of insects he called durable machines. In his laboratory at the University of Chicago, he trained cockroaches through the use of simple tropisms. Because of the insect's bilateral symmetry, a light shone on one side caused it to move in the other direction. In Russia, Ivan Pavlov moved on to animals. The term Pavlov dog has become synonymous with the conditioned reflex. Pavlov discovered that a dog would salivate when it began to associate a stimulus such as a ringing bell with food. In America, John B. Watson finally graduated to human beings. John Watson was an extremely interesting character in the history of American social science and also the history of American advertising, which is a not insignificant connection between the two. His dissertation in 1906 was about the kinesthetics of the rat as it navigated a maze, and his idea was that he could remove one by one the senses of a rat, like remove its ability to see, remove its ability to hear, its ability to feel, and then see whether the rat could still make its way through a maze that it had been trained to navigate. So in his mind, rats were always stand-ins for human beings and human subjects. He called it psychology as the behaviorist views it, and it was basically his manifesto for behaviorism. And in it, he declared that behaviorism was a science of human behavior and that there was a method available to make a technology by which human beings could be shaped in any way that a scientist desired. Watson always was interested in control. One finds this theme throughout his work. He said, give me a baby and I can make any kind of man.
Watson continued to experiment on babies and other living things until his star began to fade. At the end of his life, he wrote nostalgically of his failure to put together what he considered the ultimate experiment in social engineering, a multi-ethnic baby farm. I sometimes think I regret, Watson wrote, that I could not have a group of infant farms where I could have brought up 30 pure-blooded Negroes on one, 30 pure-blooded Anglo-Saxons on another, and 30 Chinese on a third, all under similar conditions. Watson's dream may seem bizarre to modern ears, but implicit in the concept was a real desire to see the question of race answered once and for all. He was not unlike thousands of other researchers at prestigious universities across the United States. In the late 19th century, alongside the rise of Jim Crow segregation in the 1890s, what you saw is that corporations developed a much more elaborate way to justify the fact that the wealthy corporate elite, which was without exception white, to explain the reason why. That reason has its basis in what became known as the eugenics movement. You were born with either good genes or not good genes. In the case of Miss Mason, I can see no reason for the operation that's been recommended. The girl is perfectly normal. She's hardworking and has a good reputation. Do you know anything about her family background? Oh, yes, Your Honor, I do. There are several other children, aren't there? Yes. What is their condition? One is a cripple, two others might be classed as feeble-minded. Isn't the oldest son in jail? Oh, yes, I believe so. And knowing all that, you still contend that this girl should be allowed to bring more people like that into the world? Those who have good genes should be encouraged to reproduce, and those who are, quote, unfit should be discouraged from reproducing, from having children. That eventually went into forced sterilization programs, which started in the United States, directed against African Americans, Native Americans, immigrants in particular. Eugenics was a pseudoscience rooted in the idea that you can, A, recognize pre-biologically determined differences in people based on their ethnicity, and that, B, you could construct a policy that favors some ethnic groups over others, both in terms of immigration policy and in terms of uh, integration into U.S. society based on this hierarchy of heredity. This pseudoscience, this philosophy, gained a lot of traction in the United States amongst the industrialist class, especially at a time when immigrant workers, who made up a large percentage, if not the majority of workers at the turn of the 20th century, were beginning to form unions, were beginning to create collective organizations, their own political parties, to challenge the conditions of industrialization, which were horrific and oppressive. It took root in the universities. It took root amongst the highest offices of government. Calvin Coolidge, for instance, Republican president, believed that and even stated his belief that a lot of social problems were associated with inferior races. We see ultimately this philosophy is going to play an important role in shaping immigration policy after the passage of the Immigration Act of 1924, which essentially 
creates a national quota system that favors immigrants based on their ethnicity and based on their nationality. One fact that is important to understand about the eugenics movement is that it was created and funded by the corporate elites that ruled America coming into the 20th century. It was the Rockefellers, the Harrimans, um, the Kellogg family of the cereal. They funded these research programs at universities. All of it created, funded by these corporate um, families. The Rockefellers in particular played a, a particularly uh, devious role. As the eugenics movement developed, it went in a, a really horrible direction. Haben gegen dieses Gesetz der natürlichen Auslese in den letzten Jahrzehnten furchtbar gesündigt. Wir haben unwertes Leben nicht nur erhalten, wir haben ihm auch Vermehrung gewährt. Die Nachkommen dieser Kranken sahen so aus. The Rockefellers would play a key role in the advancement of social engineering in the years between the Great Wars. Between 1922 and 1929, an arm of the Rockefeller Foundation gave out almost $50 million toward the pursuit of the social sciences around the world. According to historian Judith C. Lander, the spur was a need for better organization in society at large. What had begun as a public relations ploy to assuage public anger in the face of unscrupulous business practices and violent suppression of working people, the Rockefeller charities would set out to change society as a whole. The Yale Institute of Human Relations was founded in 1929. It was given us $7 million initially from the Rockefeller Foundation just a couple of months before Black Tuesday occurred in October of 1929. So according to my calculations, if you factor in all the money that Rockefeller eventually gave the Yale Institute and the other monies from the government, this was the largest social science project that's ever been funded in history. The desire for better order was epitomized by the Hawthorne experiments, which created a new model for organizing and supervising industrial workers. They are widely credited with putting the human factor back into industrial relations. Yet, as with previous experiments in the workplace, the ultimate effect would be to increase the power of the great capitalists at the expense of everyone else. 
All Earth Council, in its infinite wisdom, has decided these two numbers are to be disposed of. The Biochemical Forum has demands to make on their parts, however, before they are eliminated. That's the kind of efficiency that makes you proud to live in this era. happy and effective. Consultation with leading experts in the field makes it perfectly clear, perfectly clear, that we are all now programmed for perfect happiness, perfect happiness, perfect happiness, perfect happiness. occasional technical or electronic errors in programming and or surveillance which produce perverse exceptions. I'm going to have a child. First they start skipping prescribed drug dosages, then they begin touching, then indulging in various sexual acts and the ultimate perversion, love. For such extreme psychobiological misfunction, only isolation will do. You make a point several times in the book about the outlook of a British East India Company economist named Thomas Malthus, and you relate his worldview to this power elite and specifically to the kinds of things that went on <clears throat> during the peak of the Vietnam War in the 60s. You see, by that time in history, the British Empire had been built on the control of the sea. They were able to drive ships around the world. They knew the world was a sphere. A flat world had gone out. But knowing that the world is a sphere is a very important thing for mankind. It means its surface is finite. And if it's finite, then there's not more space over there and more there. It's, it's just so much. So they began immediately to inventory Earth. And this was one of the jobs of the, of the East India companies. And Thomas Malthus who taught at Haleybury College, which was the East India College, was the director of, of economics there. And it was his job, it was, he was the first person ever assigned to the job of inventorying the earth. Where does tin come from? Where does iron come from? And so on. And in the process, they began to find out how many different people there were in the world, how many different types of people, how many races of people, and where everything was, began to map the world. Well, that's a very important function but it leads you to one more thing that has governed a uh, relationship between countries ever since then because Malthus came up with this idea that the population is growing ever so much faster than the ability to raise food. And therefore, it wouldn't be long before mankind would run out of food and there would be a terrible loss of life. And it was very convenient that Darwin came along working for the same employer, the East India Company, with the idea that, well, life is a race for the survival of the fittest anyway, <clears throat> and so the fittest survive. Now, those two theories, which are propaganda, sort of made it legal for the people who invaded, the colonialists, 
to kill off a couple hundred thousand people because, first of all, they, they, they probably weren't going to get to eat anyway, and certainly they weren't the fittest because they're not alive now. They're dead. We're the fittest. It backed up the idea of this proprietary colonialism that swept the world from that period right on up into the 19th century and in some respects uh, applies today because look what's going on in Europe. Look what went on in Vietnam where hundreds of thousands of people were killed and the feeling was, you know, what they used to call the mere gook idea that, uh, well, it doesn't matter. They're, they're not, they're not going to live anyway. It's a very powerful underpinning to the civilization today. In his book, Mein Kampf, Adolf Hitler said, the purity of the racial blood should be guarded so that the best types of human beings may be preserved and that thus we should render possible a more noble evolution of humanity itself. Adolf Hitler relied on evolutionary concepts in his chilling treatise, Mein Kampf. What was the real connection between the horrors of Nazism and the theories of Darwin? The following contains some graphic scenes. Parental discretion is advised. Perhaps the most evil figure ever is Adolf Hitler. He and the Nazis committed unspeakable actions, crimes against humanity. What link, if any, is there to the theory of Charles Darwin? Dr. Richard Weikart heads the Department of History at the University of California, Stanislaus, in Turlock, California. He has written the important new book, From Darwin to Hitler. Hitler was taking ideas of Darwinism in a certain kind of direction. An important point of Darwinism uh, was that there is no distinction between humans and animals, at least no qualitative distinction. Darwin, in fact, termed it this way, there's a quantitative but not a qualitative distinction between humans and animals. There was also a sea change with the acceptance of Darwin in how humanity was to view human death itself. One of the most uh, important ways that Darwinism revolutionized thinking about morality, especially relating to bioethics and medical ethics, was by introducing a new idea of what death is. The Judeo-Christian conception of death is that death is an enemy uh, that is to be overcome and ultimately will be overcome through Christ. But the Darwinian vision is that death is a positive force that brings progress. And in fact, the more death, the more progress. The more people are born, the more variation you have. This gives more possibilities for good variations. Charles Darwin's theory was not accepted widely at first, but he noticed it began to gain a foothold in Germany, some 50 years before Hitler. And so Darwin wrote, the support which I received from Germany is my chief ground for hoping that our views will ultimately prevail. They prevailed in ways unimaginable. To truly understand the atrocities of the Holocaust, one must first understand the major movement which paved the way for it. One of the major influences on Darwin's work was the thought of British economist Thomas Malthus. Uh, Thomas Malthus uh, was an earlier uh, philosopher and thinker who came up with a number of theories about population and population control that Darwin actually built on uh, in his work. Dr. George Grant is the author of many books, including Grand Illusions, The Legacy of Planned Parenthood. What Malthus argued was that uh, it was a good thing to allow the poor 
and the undesirable aspects of populations to essentially kill themselves off uh, through ill health and, and so forth. In fact, he actually argued that philanthropy and charity to the poor was bad for the human race because it allowed the breeding of what he called human weeds. In Malthusian theory, the world human population would quickly outgrow the available food supply and so population needed to be limited. Combined with Darwin's theory of evolution, it resulted in a dangerous movement. When Darwin and also other Darwinists, such as Ernst Haeckel, who was uh, Darwin's chief disciple in Germany, uh, looked around the world at different races, they saw the American Indians being exterminated by the whites. They saw the Australian Aborigines being exterminated by uh, the Europeans. And their conclusion was, that's part of the struggle for existence. And because these inferior races are not as uh, intellectually uh, sound, then they're going to be decimated by the Europeans. And that's just a natural process. Charles Darwin had a cousin uh, by the name of Francis Galton, who uh, took the ideas of Darwin and began to apply them to the, to the realm of genetics. Uh, Galton wondered, is there a possible way to actually steer evolution through scientific methods? so that we actually create a race of thoroughbreds. Galton assumed that, uh, that there were certain good genes and certain bad genes in the, the human gene pool. The movement Galton spawned became known as the eugenics movement. The word eugenics literally means good birth. The eugenics movement resulted in restrictions on who could and could not marry involuntary sterilization, and even forced abortions in many cases. In America, tens of thousands of those deemed unfit were forcibly sterilized by the state. Even the U.S. Supreme Court declared the practice constitutional in 1927, a decision in which Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. famously declared, three generations of imbeciles are enough, thus clearing the way for a Virginia woman to be sterilized against her will. Eugenics essentially argued that there were certain population centers that were so polluted with bad human genomes that they simply needed to be eliminated. Though it is frequently ignored now, Planned Parenthood is a direct result of the eugenics movement in America. Its founder, Margaret Sanger, believed in removing what she called, quote, the dead weight of human waste, unquote. That's why Margaret Sanger would say uh, things like, our purpose is to raise up a new race of thoroughbreds. She's talked about eliminating human weeds. And the eugenics movement of the 19th and 20th centuries had an enormous influence on the policies of Adolf Hitler's Third Reich. I mean, Goebbels sounds like like Margaret Sanger and today's Planned Parenthood and, and NARAL people when, when Goebbels talks about useless eaters. Well, that's, I mean, it's about the ugliest term I've ever heard, useless eaters, human beings with the spark of the divinity in them. They don't see humans that way. They don't see humans as an engine of creation. They see them as, you know, depriving the earth of resources, useless eaters or unwanted babies. Adolf Hitler was clearly trying to speed evolution along, and he wasn't the only one. He was drawing on what many other scholars, biologists, geneticists in Germany were also uh, preaching uh, and teaching uh, in the early 20th century. 
Natural selection was a guiding idea for Hitler and the Nazis. Uh, in Mein Kampf, he talks a good deal about the struggle for existence and how uh, humans are struggling, uh, especially races is mainly where he's uh, focusing there, but in other places too he talks about even within German society there's a struggle for existence going on which brings about natural selection. Uh, and they used the word selection quite freely and in fact if you read uh, just about any books about the Holocaust you'll come across the word selection because in the camps that's exactly what they did and they used the term and the term was related directly to Darwinian terminology uh, that when you went to the camps you went through a selection process. They were selecting this person to survive and this person to go to the gas chambers. Hitler's Mein Kampf refers to evolution quite a bit but the English translator of the book uses the word development instead of evolution. Neither Charles Darwin nor his immediate followers were anti-Semitic per se, but their ideas just made the whole thing possible. We saw races locked in competition, and this, in The Descent of Man he explains this, and that because of that, different races will be exterminated. Now, he didn't necessarily believe the Jewish race was one of those inferior races that would be exterminated, but Hitler, of course, did, and he began applying that to Jews. Anti-Semitism had existed for centuries before Hitler came along, but uh, no one tried to exterminate the Jews. For Hitler, extermination was necessary because it's the only way to rid the Jewish blood from the gene pool. Adolf Hitler fancied himself an intellectual. He was always referring to Darwin and to the science of Darwinism as, an, as a reason and as a support for his racist theories. And in that you bring in science, and the Nazis loved science, uh, then this sort of gave it uh, uh, the blessing of, of modern liberal thinking, of scientific thinking. And so Darwinism and the idea that uh, you had superior races, that you had the fittest surviving, uh, certainly underlay uh, the Nazis in their thinking. Before the systematic destruction of Jews and Gypsies and Slavs and other supposedly inferior races, the Nazis killed off tens of thousands of the chronically ill. The Nazis began a euthanasia, so-called euthanasia program in 1939 when World War II began. And they carried these out by setting up six killing centers that was to get rid of people who had congenital uh, illnesses of various sort. Most of these were institutionalized people who were shipped from various institutions of Germany then to these six uh, killing centers. The total numbers of Nazis killed are difficult to pin down for a number of reasons. It depends on who you're counting. Uh, the uh, numbers of Jews killed were about six million, gypsies six to eight hundred thousand, uh, the euthanasia program about 200,000 but then there were also several million Soviet POWs I mean we're talking about in the neighborhood of 10 to 15 million though likely once the killing began it never stopped a private meeting was held at the Wannsee conference center where they decided on the final solution as in the final solution to the Jewish problem the decision to exterminate the Jewish people they did refer to Darwin at the Von Zay conference, uh, Reinhard Heydrich commented at the end, uh, Darwin would be astounded at the progress we're going to make in one year as we move the, room, the human race forward. We are not going to harm you. Everything will be all right. Everything will be all right. We are here to help you. Stay calm. 
All this had been wiped away when the British forced the poorest peasants to grow cash crops like wheat and rice for export, thereby ushering them into a global market. And in the 1870s, that market condemned them to death. By 1877, millions in southern and central India were starving. In desperation, parents sold their children for scraps of food. Many thousands committed suicide. And in some places, the people were forced into cannibalism. And all the while, the food that could have saved them was piled up on the docks of Madras, ready to be shipped to Britain and America. But to Lord Lytton, it was no more than an unfortunate byproduct of the iron laws of social Darwinism. If you read the letters of Lord Lytton, what is so striking about them is not simply their fanatical devotion to, uh, to the market and, the, and, and market forces. It's not simply their you know, parsimony and desire to spend as little as possible, but the enormous calm with which they accept the fact that millions of Indians would die because these are Indians they believe are the useless part of the population, the poorest of the poor, people condemned to death by nature. When finally Lytton was pressured into action, his solution proved just as deadly as the famine itself. Lord Lytton sets up a system of outdoor relief that looks more like Nazi concentration camps than anything representing uh, decent human charity. First of all, there's the obligatory test. You can't be relieved, that is, given a job or food within 10 miles of your residence. You must walk and you must walk sometimes distances of hundreds of kilometers and tens of thousands of people die in the course of that. Then you're put to work doing heavy labor, very heavy labor, breaking stone, working on the railroads, and you're confined then to swallowed camps where your daily diet is in caloric terms less than that provided to inmates of Buchenwald and other Nazi concentration camps. They become literally and simply death camps. And perhaps worst of all, children were now too weak and small to do the necessary uh, work. Children became the, the main victims of Lytton's cool-hearted policy. Eight million Indians died in the famines of the 1870s. But they were not the only famines of the British Raj, and they were not the last. Famines returned in the 1880s and the 1890s, and in all, almost 30 million Indians starved to death under British rule. A story airbrushed out of the glorious accounts of the Raj and the men who ruled over it. trying to do. If our goal is to help kids become critical thinkers, lifelong learners who really enjoy thinking and reading and playing with numbers and ideas, if we want to help them become good learners and good people who can create and sustain a functioning democracy, 
then education would look very different from the way it looks right now, at least in our culture. We would have to question the use of grades. What research finds is that when kids are trying to get good grades in school, three things tend to happen. They begin to lose interest in the learning itself. Now the purpose is just to get a good grade, uh, rather than to engage with the question or problem at hand. Second, they tend to think less deeply and retain uh, knowledge for a shorter period of time compared to kids who don't have any grades. And third, they tend to pick the easiest possible tasks. That's not because they're being lazy, it's because they're being rational. If we tell kids we want to see a better report card, we want to see higher grades, naturally they'll pick the shortest book or the easiest project because that maximizes the chance of achieving that goal. So regardless of what your, your goal is, if, there's, if you're interested in assessing kids and teachers and schools to see are we doing a good job here, you would never need tests in order to see whether kids are learning and where they need help, and you would never need grades to report the results of the evaluation we place on those assessments. We would certainly do away with standardized testing, the kind of testing used in particular states or provinces uh, where everyone takes the same test and then you compare everyone's scores. These tests tend to measure what matters least. It tends to be a good marker for family income because what standardized tests mostly measure is the size of the houses near a school. Uh, but it's the case that some of our deepest thinking kids just don't do well on tests. And some kids who get great scores have never had an original idea in their lives. Well, I thought you just judge by tests. Oh, no. There are many other things besides tests that we use. Of course, we do consider a child's general ability and the way he scores on standardized tests. But that's not all. competition builds character. Uh, in fact, what we find is that by any reasonable notion of character in terms of psychological health or self-esteem, that competition undermines that and creates a kind of neurosis because we come to think of ourselves as good and competent only to the extent that we have uh, defeated other people. And so we're always playing this uh, desperate king of the mountain game where we're uh, worried about triumphing over other people and stepping on their faces and looking at them as if they're going to step on our faces. Now, that has two effects. One is it's horrible for us in terms of psychological development because there's a perpetual sense of disease and anxiety. But second, it very logically has a destructive effect on our relationships. We compete because we're raised that way, not because we're born that way. I mean, take, for example, the belief in survival of the fittest, which is seen as a Darwinian notion. In fact, Charles Darwin never even used the phrase uh, survival of the fittest. That was coined by a um, right-wing social thinker in the 19th century named Herbert Spencer, who tried to corrupt Darwin's thinking to his own reactionary political purposes. What Darwin talked about was natural selection, which means that the individual organism that's best able to adapt to a changing environment is more likely to be around to survive and reproduce. But that doesn't specify competition as a mechanism. In fact, often the active avoidance of competition, if not the deliberate 
uh, pursuit of cooperative strategies turns out to make it more likely that organisms and entire species will survive. The research consistently shows that competition not only isn't necessary for excellence, but tends to impede excellence on most tasks. And the more challenging the task, the more ingenuity, problem-solving skill it requires, uh, the more competition tends to disrupt uh, that achievement. Excellence pulls in one direction and competition pulls in another. And in fact, another kind of research study corroborates that. If you take a whole bunch of people and give them a task to do, some kind of problem to work out, and half of them are told, see if you can figure out how to do this task. And the other half are told, this is a contest with a prize to whoever wins, whoever does the best job. Study after study after study across cultures, across gender, across ages. Uh, find that uh, the people who compete, who have to compete, end up doing an inferior job on that task. At the moment, it appears uh, as though much of what happens in schools in North America is really for the convenience of people who have most of the power. There is, if anything, an active discouragement of critical questioning. Corporations claim they want kids who are able to think outside the box, but only so far as they're caught within a larger box that works to the advantage of the free market, um, which means that the market economy, based on competition, based on economic rather than human considerations, uh, ends up controlling the system. Today, Many people assume that antisocial and even violent behavior by young people is a completely natural phenomenon. Yet anthropological studies reveal this to be a myth. Our widespread use of the term juvenile delinquency exposes not only the failure of modern schooling, but of an important concept given expression by the behaviorists. They called it the frustration-aggression hypothesis. The frustration-aggression hypothesis was an attempt by behaviorists at Yale to combine their own science of behavior with that of the Freudians. Simply put, when people perceive that they are being prevented from achieving just rewards, their frustration is likely to turn to aggression. This study by the behaviorist Hobart Maurer showed that when rats could not achieve their expected reward, they began to take out their frustrations on each other. The scientist notes that two animals which have lost their hold on the pellet, frustration, will be seen to turn on each other, displaced aggression. Similarly, in a 1941 experiment, toys were placed behind a wire screen where children could see but not touch them. When they eventually gained access to the toys, their play became considerably more destructive. On the one hand, human beings are not rats. Armed with the necessary information, we can come to a logical conclusion about who is to blame for our frustrations in life. Rightly or wrongly, we often point the finger squarely back at ourselves. Yet in the hands of politicians and demagogues, frustration aggression can be a potent tool in deflecting anger onto scapegoats. They want to throw white children and colored children into the melting pot of integration, through out of which will come a conglomerated. The latter mongrel class of people.
We are the Ku Klux Klan. We hate niggers. We hate Jews. We hate faggots. And we hate specks. We kill the faggots. We kill the lesbians. I said, God damn it, we kill them all. Why kill the elder crackers? The old crepit crackers in South Africa. How in the hell you think they got old? They got old oppressing and killing black people. I'm not going to discuss it. If he says murder gets murdered, if a murderer gets murdered or, or slain, capital punishment, that's fine with me. Line them up and we'll clean up our nation overnight. Start with the abortionists. Might as well get rid of a few of those beasts. I'm so sick of them. I'm so sick of the brainwashing about Islam and Muslims and the Koran. Shove it. Shove it all. I'm sick of it. Get, get, take the music off. These throwbacks think they're better than you underneath it all, and 90% of them are on welfare. Speak it out at the supermarket. Tell them what you think of Islam. Tell them what you think of Muslims. We're talking about illegal immigration. So now in addition to venereal disease and the other leading exports of Mexico, women with mustaches and VD, now, now we have swine flu. And when you scoop up some of the world's lowest of primitives in poor Mexico, and drop it down in the middle of the United States, poor, without skills, without language, not sure our culture, not sure our hygiene, haven't been vaccinated. Look at all the things we take for granted. It's millions of leeches from a primitive country come here to leech off you. I don't know what happened tonight, and I don't know why. Also, the gay agenda and Harry Potter. Professors, the 101 most dangerous academics in America, and that's just a short list of the uh, 30, 40,000 of them. They're like termites that have worked into the woodwork of our uh, academic society, and it just it's appalling. Scapegoating, and, uh, and the hope is that that by deflecting the anger of people, which might be directed against the system itself, deflecting the anger against these other people. Uh, the system would save itself. In, uh, in the South, the black people became scapegoats. And you directed the anger of white people. Poor white people in the South were the people who joined the Ku Klux Klan. These poor white people might have rebelled against the governments of the South and against the national government, but no, they were told that black people were the source of their problem. heavily armed, immediately started shooting everybody. It was a local man dressed in battle fatigues who declared, I have killed a thousand, I'm going to kill a thousand more. 41-year-old James Huberty reportedly walked into the restaurant carrying a semi-automatic rifle and two other weapons, enough ammunition to last two hours. Witnesses inside said he fired wildly into the unsuspecting crowd, gathered for a quick evening meal. He fired through windows, hitting people in the street. He fired at men, women, children, and babies. Bullets fly, leaving a local family scared to be in their own home. Tonight, investigators say hate 
was driving the man who pulled the trigger. Deputies say last month someone opened fire on the Hashems because they're Muslim. And I need to know who hates us that much, who's, you know, who wants us to, to, to die. Authorities in California are urging Jewish schools and temples to stay alert following a shooting at a synagogue in L.A. The attack happened in the same area of Bushwick where another Hispanic immigrant was killed. Vera left a food pantry here at his church in lower Manhattan carrying his groceries. He biked across the Williamsburg Bridge and into Bushwick, where police say he was allegedly struck in the head, then thrown off his bike as three black males yelled anti-Mexican slurs. On the left-hand side of your screen, you can see the two attackers shove and punch Jack Price, the openly gay victim now in a medically induced coma. The attack accelerates with both suspects flailing their arms at the helpless 49-year-old. There was utter pandemonium outside the university building as ambulances carted away the injured. Police have now confirmed 14 students dead, all women. Another dozen people were hurt, caught in a rampage that witnesses called a human hunt, with the gunman yelling, I want women. There's an interesting perspective that comes out of many studies in psychiatric anthropology which suggests that uh, mental illness is not just a standardized uh, invarying thing like, like diabetes for example. Diabetes is always the same wherever you are in the world but uh, mental illness seems to take different forms. Once a person takes leave of reality, once a person abandons the ship of fools, the uh, the form that the psychosis takes is often dictated or at least shaped by the dominant culture. Uh, thus, for example, in uh, traditional Ojibwe society where there was a belief that, that once a person went insane, this is the Wendigo psychosis, that uh, he or she might eat human flesh. And thus a proportion of people who, feeling that they've left reality, uh, no longer feeling control, begin to act out the particular form of psychosis that their culture is aware of. Multiple murderers tend to differ from the conventional single murderers. The, uh, the ordinary murderer is very uniform everywhere in the industrial world. He's uh, very much a bottom of the working class figure. He's addicted to drugs or alcohol. He has no education or professional qualifications. This is the sort of person who, in a fit of rage, kills a friend or a lover. Multiple murders are a little different. Uh, they tend to be more edging towards the middle class in their origins and in their aspirations. And a, a part of the, their agenda, of their motivation, is, is that uh, they devoutly wish to join a higher class but come to feel excluded. In the case of James Huberty, the mass murderer who killed more than a dozen people in that long siege at the McDonald's in San Diego. Uh, Huberty used to stare from his uh, apartment across the street at McDonald's, which was filled with uh, Mexican immigrants who were seizing control of the, this fundamental institution, he thought, of American society, who were able to go there and afford to eat when he couldn't. I tried to argue in a succession of books that these kinds of killers, while their acts are deranged and insane, what they, they themselves are not necessarily so. Rather, they are alienated individuals who wish to end their life in a way that allows them to release their grudge 
against society for their perceived exclusions. Multiple killers may be statistically rare, but I've tried to argue that they represent central cultural themes. They embody many of the main ideas in, in, in their culture. Uh, not only the glorification of violence and manly vengeance, but worldly success and worldly ambition, which uh, they feel they've been foiled in. So they're a prime embodiment of their civilization, not a twisted derangement of it. I've also tried to argue that this fundamentally rebellious rather than revolutionary cast to what they're doing, these ghastly killings they perpetrate, uh, are relatively ignored by uh, government institutions charged with regulating society. Uh, they typically pay much more attention to political, real political dangers and spend much less time and energy and money monitoring uh, this small group of killers. I don't believe personally that the answer to psychopathy is to be found in brain-altering chemicals to change the nature of our society in that artificial way. I think what we ought to start doing is teaching people about the dignity and value and the sacredness of human life and teaching people how to behave towards one another. The important thing to understand, however, is while it's interesting to look in, into the nature of modern society and see its fissures and fractures and stresses, through uh, multiple murderers. It should not be considered that these are the primary killers. Governments and politicians are the main killers. Indeed, some, some uh, scholars have argued that the state's primary function is as mass murderer, to wage war on other states. And that was how they developed. That's the, the uh, social impetus for uh, the development of the modern state. So it's kind of disturbing. We don't think of the state in that way, but that's what it is. Hitler and Stalin, between them, killed something like 100, more than 100 million peoples, many of them their own peoples. Uh, this small-time personal, personalized vengeance of a few serial killers and mass killers comes to nothing compared to, to them. The real killers are governments. Nowhere is frustration and aggression more apparent than in modern-day military training. In her study of Japanese atrocities in China, Iris Chang observed that Japanese troops were subjected to particularly severe abuse prior to their deployment. They were repeatedly slapped for no reason, humiliated in front of their peers, and reduced to a state of impotent rage. It was generally at this point that they would be given a bayonet and instructed to attack the enemy, who was portrayed as a subhuman animal. In America, the same techniques would be adopted, with the emphasis less on physical abuse than verbal. Yeah. <laughs> 
My family was poor. I mean, we used to live on dirt roads and, you know, we used to wear sandals most of the time or, I mean, humble, you know, we used to probably wash our same clothes two or three times a week because that's basically pretty much what we had. I wanted people to see that, you know, this is where I come from and look at me now, I'm, I'm a Marine. I come from the poor side of, of town, you know, so anybody else could make it as well. You know, some type of motivation for my little brothers and my little cousins, something they, they could look forward to. Light them all up. Come on, fire! Hey, Roger. Keep shooting. Frustration aggression is one of the most effective ways of managing a population. By directing a person's rage against selected minorities or outside enemies, the true cause of an individual's frustration can be effectively diverted. Yet in many ways, the theory is a symptom of something deeper. In order to engender real hatred against a particular group, that group must first be feared. And it is in the realm of fear that behaviorism made its most disturbing contribution. Hobart Maurer, he would be called a neo-behaviorist, and he trained at the Yale Institute of Human Behavior. And he was quite unusual. I think his background was unusual, and he was also an unusually perceptive and sensitive man. And one of the first and most significant um, experiments he did was called a preparatory set, in which he had um, a, a human being lie down, or it, usually it was a student, lie down and be attached to electrodes that would deliver a shock whenever a light went on and then so he would shine the light and then shock the student and at that point several people elected to discontinue the experiment but those who persisted he would then vary the experiment by showing the light and then not shocking them or showing the light and shocking them he would sort of uh, make it unpredictable and he discovered that people's state of anxiety and uh, fear actually increased when the shock didn't come when they were just waiting for a shock to come or when they didn't know if a shock would ever come and he said it actually created a, an atmosphere of pervasive fear and, uh, and anxiety, and he even called it dread or terror. We have to remind ourselves that we are facing an enemy that is planning all over this world, and it turns out planning inside our country to come here and kill us. And he said that that atmosphere could be ratcheted up progressively the more the experiment continued and the more um, unpredictable the shocks were, so that after a while, the, when the shock came, the pain actually was experienced as relief and almost pleasure by the subject. He called it a nervous breakdown, or what he described in another part of the article as the ultimate demoralization of behavior. What he extracted from this experiment was the idea that there was such a thing as a coercive stimulus that could actually be used to create a, an environment of dread or terror or anxiety from a low to a high level, and that the scientists could actually, it was almost as if they were turning the volume on a stereo. They could um, decide how much of that atmosphere, how intense they would like it to be. Needless to say, a creature in a highly fearful environment will be eager to escape to a new environment. This includes human beings. 
Maurer suggested that new behavior patterns could be quickly created through his techniques. The prospect of creating new behavior patterns quickly and efficiently became an obsession during the Cold War, when the Central Intelligence Agency assumed dominance in the field of mind control experimentation. During the Cold War, the national security state would take the logic of power to its logical conclusion. Known under the umbrella name MKUltra, mind control experimentation by the CIA would abandon any pretense to morality, leading to a nightmarish search for the holy grail of social engineering, a fully controlled, fully obedient human being. Secrets of the Dead. As World War II winds down, the Allies race to capture Hitler's best scientists and technology. The Black Book had names, targets, places, people. The most important were the scientists, the German scientists. Searching for rockets, planes, nuclear bombs, and the masterminds behind them. Each side wants the advantage for the looming Cold War. The hunt for Nazi scientists, next on Secrets of the Dead. The majority of media on the subject of Project Paperclip has centered on German rocket scientists recruited by the United States to prevent the Soviet Union from establishing military supremacy. Hollywood has dealt with the topic in much the same way, often adding humor to the equation. I, for one, do not intend to go to sleep by the light of a communist moon. Now, we will be in full control of this pod. It will go up like a cannonball and come down like uh, a cannonball, uh, splashing down in the water of the ocean with a parachute to spare the life of the spacemen inside. Spacemen? Specimen. Well, what kind of specimen? A tough one. Responsive to orders. I had in mind a jimp. Jimp? Well, what the hell is a jimp? Jimp, uh, chimpanzee, Senator, uh, an ape, huh? The first American into space is not going to be a chimpanzee. Seldom discussed with equal candor is the recruitment of Nazi scientists who specialized in human experimentation. Among them were Kurt Blum, who tested sarin nerve gas on prisoners at Auschwitz, and Hermann Becker Freising, who conducted fatal experiments at Dachau. The American people got hold of X number of German scientists, but they immediately ran into a problem. Many of these scientists were classified as war criminals because of their activities during the war, and therefore were not eligible for State Department visas and could not be brought into the United States. So what the CIA did was create uh, several of these different programs, including Paperclip, and their purpose was to, number one, recruit these scientists, and then number two, bring them into the U.S while routing them around the State Department visa requirements. A well-known doctor who came in under paperclip was Dr. Albertus Strughold, who did experiments during the Second World War that were full Nazi atrocity type experiments. For instance, they were interested in the effects of high altitude 
on human beings. So they built a special chamber. They would put a gypsy or homosexual or a Jew or whoever it might be into the chamber and suddenly drop the pressure down to the equivalent of 60,000 feet. Uh, this obviously was excruciating and caused the person to die. And then they would take the guy out of the chamber, dunk his head underwater, and cut his skull open underwater to see if there was air bubbles coming out of the arteries in his brain. And so you know, they did dozens and dozens of experiments of this kind. So this guy was brought over under paperclip, became the father of aviation medicine in the United States, uh, worked at an Air Force base in uh, San Antonio, amongst other locations, has a library named after him at one of the Air Force bases in San Antonio, and the Texas State Legislature declared an Alberta Struckhold Day in honor of him uh, back in the 70s. Whether Nazi scientists participated in experiments on Americans after their recruitment by American intelligence remains unknown. What is known is that such experiments became a matter of routine. Some of the studies were relatively harmless, if unethical. In 1966, the U.S. Army Special Operations Division dispensed a non-toxic bacillus to the New York City subway system by way of cracked light bulbs. Other experiments were not so harmless.
Welcome to episode two of the Creature of Control podcast series from within the Stones Media Network. This episode is titled On the Origin of Social Darwinism and the War on You, Elitism and the Obsession with Social Control. In this episode, we will explore how history, the present, and the future are built on a set of ideas and philosophies. And those who wish to control and manipulate others will justify their actions with those philosophies, regardless of the ideology being evil or virtuous, and as long as it falls in line with their agenda and those seeking to justify their actions, then this model of the philosophy that's picked up can be built and skewed to fit the desired outcome of the predator or of the creature of control. And so in order to defend ourselves from predators and tyranny, uh, we need to hold the truth of the highest principle for ourselves, and we need to keep it at the highest pinnacle of our principles, um, and that should be the desire to discover and understand truth. Your body is designed to discover truth, and we're here to continuously put forth effort to align our being with that which is with that which is reality, and this should be held above above all else in your life. And a consistent pressure should be applied in the direction of truth discovery. And I just want to say again that I'm not an expert in the information here that I'm putting forth. I am a gatherer of information and someone who likes to paint a bigger picture for myself of how we got to where we are now and where we came from by looking at a broad array of topics that we'll be discussing here in the Creature of Control podcast series. And so I'm just here exploring just like you are and trying to make something creative out of and useful out of my exploring. So I don't have all the answers and I may not be 100% accurate in everything I say and present here, but you know, that's part of this process is going to be to uh, continue to discover and go on a journey of discovery with the series and the production. So it's going to, it's going to be something that's an ongoing process and I'm just attempting to present material in a creative way that may inspire you to look into these topics and ideas on your own and maybe make a ripple effect of people who want to look into some of these topics. And it can be used to gain more personal freedom 
in my life and your own lives by continually trying to align ourselves with that which is and with the truth of the reality around us. So I'm attempting to present a tapestry of information, so we're, we might not go into every little detail of the surrounding history on the topics that are discussed here, but we will be doing a broad overview and ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance is considered the root of all evil and by evil I would just clarify that and say I mean that which opposes human freedom or that which would would oppose freedom of any creature and so it would I'm not you know trying to paint a picture in people's minds of the a Christian definition of the term evil or something like that I'm talking about the opposing force in nature so we're going to link this topic in with the topic from episode one, psychopathy, and how that opposes human freedom. And the reason why that was discussed is because the creature of control seems to behave in a psychopathic manner, and especially according to the checklist that we created, not the official Dr. Robert Hare checklist, but the checklist that we had just put together or I had put together in episode one and how the creature of control seems to basically act in a psychopathic way and in the by the creature of control obviously I'm just talking about the general group of predator class individuals who seek to prey on and plunder others in order to live their lives and get by where the rest of us don't operate that way and we create our own existence and we don't need to use others to do that and that's not to say that all the people taking part in the control systems are psychopaths but it you know it's actually quite the opposite because for the most part people are just you know quote unquote going along to get along so most people are just conformists and they're conforming to the herd and that's kind of the idea of the psychopathy being discussed in episode one is that these individuals tend to seek out institutions and organization, organizations that they can join to cl climb to the top of these structures. And that's where the control comes into play in where the rubber meets the road in that way because uh, psychopaths tend to climb the ladder more aggressively in a hierarchical structure. So the going along to get along conformity mentality unfortunately takes the victim role in that scenario and is currently taking the victim role and it's not to say that those people aren't to blame for the behavior that's continually taking place around them and against them but that's what this is all about is to spread information so hopefully we can start a wildfire of information so that more people can become aware of certain things that might be happening uh, that they don't have to participate in just by 
becoming aware, you know. And so the question is, is, you know, what are some of the driving factors that are driving uh, the creature of control? And it's kind of redundant, but mainly a lot of people might say greed or uh, status and monetary power things like this but really it's coming down to now just being about control and the rest of those things are in abundance for the ruling elite it's important to keep that in mind that what drives the creature of control is simply that just more control and again attributing normal morals and ethics and motivations or inspiration to the psychopath is a mistake because they are not like you and I, they're sick individuals, and that needs to be understood, and I think that's a big mistake to attribute your sense of ethics or your sense of morality to other people, and some imagination needs to take place there on as far as what other people would be willing to do to get by as far as how they see things and their worldview. So again, who is the creature of control? And is it psychopaths? Is it the so-called elite? Who actually aren't anything but the elite of the bottom of a trash can, really. The scumbags who call themselves the elite really aren't ruling over anything in reality and it's all just a big scam that everybody can start to see now. So what am I talking about when I'm talking about the creature? And well, one thing we can look at there is the similarities between, you know, the so-called global elite and the psychopaths from episode one and the different people and organizations that use trauma to create and propagate psychopathic behavior because it's one thing if there's a genetic issue with the species where there's psychopaths being born you know one in every 300 or so but it's another thing if there's psychopaths that have designed mechanisms to manipulate others into acting like psychopaths and so when we talk about those types of people or organizations we can kind of almost clearly see that being done in the military and especially the you know from what I'm aware of the military in the United States and the way that they bring on people or almost even like prey on particular types of people to join the military and just kind of as a side note even recently I've been reading about um, cases where people with a high IQ are basically not allowed to continue on with their progress in the military and persuaded or even removed from the equation um, because they and the reason cited is because they have a high level of IQ which I don't necessarily put anything on the IQ test that's not what I'm bringing that up for but the military is definitely an organization where the individual is reduced to the level of the group and the group is more important and the leadership definitely 
becomes more important than the individual and the tendency to not think for yourself and your own actions are propagated in the military so and then the question for me would then become well then can large populations be traumatized enough to start behaving like psychopaths and could a level of trauma be held high enough and gradually increase to the point where you have a large group of people in society you know maybe some of the time behaving in a psychopathic manner themselves because being kept in base consciousness or being kept in the R complex of the brain in fight or flight mode in the reptilian complex which in some episode in the future we may dive into that topic more and because it does definitely connect back to the psych psychopathy and the brain and um, the way we use our brain and we could talk about the left-right imbalance and the reptilian complex and people living within the reptilian complex instead of the using the frontal cortex and the neo cortex to process and use logical thought process which is what we're response with to do that's our responsibility once we have that capability is to use logic and reason which is what the human being is able to do and not just operate in an instinctual or an animal type mentality and doesn't that definitely tie in with the social darwinism and looking at man as just another animal and a you know a, a creature that is bad in by nature and that certain you know parts of the species are not as good as others based on social status and bogus testing and statistics such as IQ which is why you know I don't necessarily I don't agree with that type of labeling of human individuals by numbers and uh, graphics and graph data and different statistics that could be gathered through testing or behaviorism tech, you know studies or you know because the human being the real purpose and meaning of a human being is infinite possibility and infinite worth and so to try to narrow any of that down to numbers or graphs is you know based on testing is um, simply a box uh, thinking ins inside of a box and living inside of a, a world designed around theories and philosophies that make human beings into being nothing more than a you know an intelligent animal and we have to consider how psychopathy and ideas like social Darwinism affect society on a large scale and especially you know if we're not aware that there's psychopaths around us because it is something that's not well known or widely discussed and if we don't weren't aware up until recently how has this been affecting society and then you know when we look at things like the Hegelian dialectic or modern social engineering or eugenics and the negative use of tools like the Hegelian dialectic to manipulate society, then, you know, the psychopathy and the theory of social Darwinism definitely seem to tie in to creating 
well, it's manifesting as chaos, really, in, in the world around us um, because of these worldviews and elitism, moral relativism, globalism, um, pushing collectivism, people who believe that they need to continue on certain bloodlines. This goes back to ancient uh, times where bloodlines and we get this idea of the ruling families and, and why we have particular people that carried on their bloodline in order to possibly carry on certain traits, maybe even psychopathic traits in people that are ruthless to continue control systems and control paradigms. And so we have uh, this idea of multi-generational planning or, you know, a very long, slow-moving creeping plans from these uh, particular bloodlines um, or ruling elite who can see things on a larger scale and move their plan forward slow, uh, slowly, such as like creeping socialism or Fabianism, which will be discussed later in this episode. And so that's a little bit of the context why we're discussing psychopathy and then next this topic of social Darwinism and I think how those two kind of play off of each other is interesting and something that can be discussed and then further to kind of highlight again something from episode one is the difficulty in discovering a psychopath. So I'm going to read a clip here from The Mask of Sanity by Hervey Gleckel. Gleckley is an American psychiatrist. He's considered, he was considered to be a pioneer in the field of psychopathy. And here it goes. So the so-called psychopath is ordinarily free from signs or symptoms traditionally regarded as evidence of a psychosis. He does not hear voices. Genuine delusions cannot be demonstrated. There is no valid depression. Consistent pathologic elevation of mood or irresistible pressure of activity, outer perceptual reality is accurately recognized. Social values and generally accredited personal standards are accepted verbally. Excellent logical reasoning is maintained. In theory, the patient can foresee the consequences of injustice or antisocial acts, outline acceptable or admirable plans of life, and ably criticize in words his former mistakes. The result of direct psychiatric examination disclosed nothing pathological, nothing that would indicate incompetency or that would arouse suspicion that, could, that a man could not lead a successful and happy life. Not only is the psychopath rational of his thinking, free of delusions, but he also appears to react with normal emotions. His ambitions are discussed with what appears to be a healthy enthusiasm. His convictions impress even the skeptic observers as firm and binding. He seems to respond with adequate feeling to another's interest in him and, as he discusses his wife, children, and parents, he is likely to be judged a man of warm human responses capable of full devotion and loyalty. He seems to respond with adequate feeling to another's interest in him, and as he discusses his wife, his children, or his parents, he is likely to be judged a man of warm human responses, capable of full devotion and loyalty. So again, it's just highlighting how 
the psychopath isn't someone who walks around with a trench coat and, you know, unclean, unshaven, distraught look with, you know, panting and <laughs> um, pacing back and forth, you know, out in the open. This is not how you're going to spot a psychopath. It, it would be, again, as we discussed, looking at their behaviors and maybe the groups that they organize themselves around and how they're affect how how they're affecting the, that group or what what their long-term choices have been and not just looking at them by what they say act like pretend as like they are and so on so we also discussed intraspecific kleptoparasites in episode 1 and I just wanted to touch on that again as well, just institutions that behave and act like that. If we take a look and an honest look at the structures around us, we can see that one obvious institution, at least obvious to me, would be a government, and that government seems to uh, have all the correct traits of a interspecific kleptoparasite type predator and we'll definitely have to look into that further as we go down the road here and again the police and the military also uh, seem to behave and act like interspecific kleptoparasites and they have a predatory way of operating as well as another obvious institution is a banking institution and banks and the way that they create money out of nothing and then charge interest on it is definitely a predatory group of it's a predatory way of operating it's basically modern banking is organized crime and I think it's an obvious parasitic institution uh, feeding on others to survive. So we've got to shine a light on that and take care of that problem. And we'll definitely have some episodes dedicated to the monetary system and we'll discuss that further. The modern monetary system doesn't create anything real, only fake money that is used to feed off of other people. And these organizations match the behavior of psychopaths and the actions result in the behavior and the moral relativism type of worldview of psychopaths. And we can definitely see that in not just governments, police, military, banking, but also corporate structures in general. And when we get into the magical thunk thinking of legal land and the idea that man can just create reality with writing things down on paper rather than observe the natural law and the way the universe has already constructed laws in effect around us and we can discover those laws and not pretend that we're creating the difference between right and wrong simply by using the magical thinking of legal land to justify behavior that would otherwise be looked at as wrong. 
And so now we get into the topic of social Darwinism and the episode clips that were heard. The first clip was from Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. Here's to the warmongers, criminals, liars, and psychopaths. And after that, we went into the story of your enslavement, also Stefan Molyneux. And again, he can be found over at Free Domain Radio. And then we heard just a short excerpt from The Prisoner, 1967, an interesting dystopian film, if you would like to check that out. And after that, we heard another excerpt from The Human Resources, Social Engineering in the 20th Century by Metonia Films. That's Scott Noble, the producer of those films, and I would... I'm going to include an, a link to Metonia Films in the show notes because I would suggest hopping over there and checking out the full clip of Human Resources, Social Engineering in the 20th Century. But I've also been screening many other films on that website recently, and I would have to say they're all excellent and very well done and very well laid out and just tremendous work done there by Scott Noble. After that, we heard an excerpt from an interview with Colonel Fletcher Prouty, and that was an interview in 1992 from Jeff Steinberg, where he discusses Thomas Malthus and some of the history behind the theory of Darwin, Darwin's theory of evolution and natural selection and the survival of the fittest after that, we heard the Darwin mentality from Lamel Online. That was the clips you heard that were centered around World War II, Hitler, and the genocide that took place there. And I would have to say that some of the numbers discussed in that were, in my opinion, not very accurate. But besides that, just a good clip to insert at that point because of the ties into social Darwinism and the results of that type of thinking. And then we have another really short clip from the BBC documentary on eugenics and social Darwinism from the British Empire. And that was a discussion about the genocide of 13 million Indians around that time when the British Empire ruled over India not too long ago obviously was the Indian Revolution not even 70 years ago. And then we went back to another clip um, from the same film Human Resources Social Engineering in the 20th Century and that will be included in the show notes a, a clip uh, link to that website. Um, you can stop by the brain model I've created, the Creature of Control Brain, on my website, www.withinthestones.com, and there's contact page on there as well, and other media produced by Within the Stones. It's a relatively new website, so we're still, I'm still working on getting content, content up there, and it'll be a slow-moving project, as this is mainly something that I do when I have the time to do it, but as most of you out there can probably sympathize with is there's limited amounts of that to go around. And so 
again, the creature of control uses ideas and theories from history or from people around them and to justify its actions. And social Darwinism is definitely one of those theories that has been built up. And with that, we go into a quote from Charles Darwin's The Descent of Man. With savages, the weak in body or mind are soon eliminated, and those that survive commonly exhibit a vigorous state of health. We civilized men, on the other hand, do our utmost to check the process of elimination. We build asylums for the imbecile, the maimed, and the sick. We institute poor laws, and our medical men exert their utmost skill to save the life of every one to the last moment. Thus, the weak members of civilized societies propagate their kind. No one who has attended to the breeding of domestic animals will doubt that this must be highly injurious to the race of man. It is surprising how soon a want of care, or care wrongly directed, wrongly directed leads to the degeneration of a domestic race. But excepting in the case of man himself, hardly anyone is so ignorant to allow his worst animals to breed. And so... I'm not discussing Darwinism here to argue creationism versus evolution, but to show how certain theories can be used to push an agenda. That's why I'm bringing that up here and not to go into a debate of creationism versus evolution. The purpose of discussing, discussing social Darwinism here is in relation to social control and how people use social Darwinism to turn it around for their own agenda, such as purifying a race or exterminating a race, um, positive, negative eugenics. Uh, so I'm distinguishing between Darwinism and social Darwinism. You know, Darwinism being natural selection, survival of the fittest, you know, the theory of evolution, where with social Darwinism we're talking about you know, more being specific to human traits or characteristics of humans and how people have used that to create theories about a superior race or superior races of men, uh, particularly the Anglo-Saxon uh, British Empire takeover um, pushing this philosophy of a superior race of men. And so from a social Darwinist point of view, whole nations or entire races could be considered unfit um, based on this type of philosophy. So using social Darwinism to justify things like a superior race, you know, could lead to the extermination of other races. And in this is fear-based thinking. This is genuine you know, lack, scarcity, fear-based point of view, the fear-based way of looking at the world. So, social Darwinism is used in a completely different way than just, you know, theorizing on how we evolved as humans. Modern religionists or people who read the Bible, the Bible exoterically or not reading it and seeing it for the allegory that it is, are taking social Darwinism and using it as an attack on their little box 
and seeing it as an attack on their faith and arguing against it in that way. But they're really religionists are missing the point that I'm attempting to bring forth here is that social Darwinism is uh, being used as a justification for the elite to control the populations of the world. And this is happening to all of us, not just religionists who are taking this argument into their little box of thinking and simply seeing it for the attack on their theories of creationism. Which, again, that's not what we're discussing here, creationism versus evolution. I think that, honestly, that would be a completely different topic to, to discuss rather than what we're talking about with social Darwinism being used with this whole superior race mentality. And so we have men like Herbert Spencer who really radicalized Darwin's theories. And it was actually, as heard in one of those clips in the introduction there, Herbert Spencer who phrased the term, the phrase, who coined the phrase survival of the fittest. Uh, so it's, that was not popularized by Darwin, as many people think, but actually by Herbert Spencer. And it was Herbert Spencer um, who used ideas regarding Darwin's theories were to as more being based on race and turning it into more of a race issue. And in Spencer's point of view, only one race could make it up the evolutionary spiral and the rest would be left behind. So the survival of the fittest, in my opinion, has been taken to mean survival of the most ruthless and the strongest and the most cunning individuals. So it's been put on top of its head, really, if, in my opinion, thinking about natural selection and what it's been turned into of this survival of the most ruthless and the most cunning uh, men or women in society and even whole races that are perhaps you know more ruthless and cunning in their behavior of wanting to just dominate other people um, that's more social Darwinism and if humans are destroying the earth and we're currently having you know mass population die off of all kinds of species and potentially the human species, then are we really currently allowing the most fit to rule over us, or are we allowing the most ruthless to rule over, rule over us? And see, that's where I'm making a distinguishment between taking the theory of natural selection and then saying that that means that the most most you know cunning, ruthless psychopaths should be be fit to rule over us. That's taking it and putting it on its head. That doesn't make sense. The theme here is is that people use these ideas to propagate their way of looking at the world, even if it doesn't align with reality. So, perhaps, you know, we've just let the most ruthless to rise to the top, and not actually the most fit, it's because it's one thing to argue natural selection as a form of gene mutation, and then carrying on these mutations as a benefit to the species, but it's an entirely different thing to argue that the most ruthless and cunning of the species should carry on their bloodline or their gene pool while others are not ruthless and cunning should not, you know, 
people that are just trying to live a more in harmony with the earth and not aggressively always after resources and control of land that doesn't make them less evolved but that's what these people social darwinists have you know pretty much laid in stone is that that's how things work and it's an elitist belief system this is purely and simply a ruler elitist you know the ruling class worldview it's a modern way of justifying the rule of other people and the slavery of other people they believe in inferior races and in whole inferior groups of people and so the right to rule over them is inherent in these people's mind it's just the way that nature works and i would argue against that and say that you know it doesn't just mean survival of the fittest as far as muscles and you know intellect go but survival of the fittest as far as harmony with the environment around you in order to keep your species intact in order to not die kill everyone off just to continue this greed and you know plunder of the earth mentality that we have right now which is just a condition of society that can be changed it doesn't need to continue on in that way and there's no reason to de depopulate the earth to carry on the way that we're living that's like putting a band-aid on something that needs you know stitches or something like that it's we need to fix some, this at the root of the problem and not the symptoms that these so-called social darwinists see as one of the symptoms being overpopulation which is really just a bogus way of justifying their way of this keeping the status quo and controlling everyone and gaining further control over the human species by using things like social Darwinism to justify mass depopulation. And a lot of people that I've talked to out there in the world actually agree with social Darwinism and eugenics and, you know, killing off the mass idiots or the inferior people out there. And so I would just ask those people to heavily question where they got this idea from and where they got the information from that made them think that the earth is overpopulated and kind of question where the those ideas come from and it may seem that you've come to these ideas on your own but really uh, they have to come from somewhere and some kind of logic that somebody's used and given you an idea of overpopulation but I don't you know, you'd have to look at this a little bit more objectively, a little bit more in depth, and determine where these ideas and came from. Um, because I think that thinking that the Earth is overpopulated and thinking that that's a high priority problem that needs to be addressed is really just coming from people with a lack of imagination. So you know, along with people like Spencer, we have people like Francis Galton, who is. Charles Darwin's half-cousin. Galton was known as the founder of eugenics and he, he was heavily influenced by Darwin's theories. Uh, he was mentioned in the introduction clips, the Darwin mentality, and he was the founding president of the British Eugenics Society, known today as the Galton Institute, so it's named after him. 
And other prominent members of the Galton Institute are Margaret Sanger, she was the founder of Planned Parenthood, Julian Huxley, should be familiar with that name, Leonard Darwin, who I believe was the nephew of Charles Darwin, sorry, that's the son of Charles Darwin, and John Maynard Keynes, which should be a familiar name as well, and then several others who would be well-known were members of the Galton Institute, which originally was called the British Eugenics Society. Galton's definition of eugenics is the study of the agencies under social control that may improve or impair the racial qualities of future generations, either physically or mentally. So note improve or impair the social qualities of future generations. So by impair, what do you mean by that? <laughs> um, and then so uh, that leads me into making the distinction between dysgenics versus eugenics or positive eugenics versus negative eugenics, which it's all really just eugenics. And the further categorization is just to help distinguish some ideas there with dysgenics being things that, in, you know, and this is kind of my take on it, would be more of natural selection happening, but it doesn't benefit the species. And there's actually a gene that takes on a role that really maybe shouldn't be there. And so it's actually hurting the overall growth of the species. That's a form of dysgenics and, you know, eugenics, when we're distinguishing between dysgenics and eugenics would be things that happen to the genes that actually end up making mutations beneficial to the species. So they would carry on in a beneficial way. But then when we talk about positive and negative eugenics, here we're talking about more of intervention or interference with, you know, by other human beings, in my opinion, this is my take on positive versus negative eugenics being using forms of manipulating the genes to benefit the species would be positive eugenics and then doing things in the, in the environment of the individuals to reduce their you know reproduction or their traits would be negative eugenics and this is all kind of like british anglo saxon you know british empire white man you know pulling up on the shore and deeming a whole native people as inferior and then deciding that everyone should be sterilized and exterminated um this is how it's been carried out and again i mean how can you quantify that to say that just because someone's living a different lifestyle than you are and doesn't go around you know utilizing unnecessary resources and living a life of just continuous you know frequent progress that ends up causing a lot of havoc and wreaking a lot of problems you know, just by kind of forgetting about all morals and all how to do things right versus how to do things wrong, kind of, if you have that kind of society for the, where progress and, you know, production is the most valuable thing, then, yeah, you're going to come across an indigenous people who aren't living that way and are living more in harmony with the nature around them. 
and then just deem them inferior that they should be sterilized or exterminated and this is how these ideas um, for, you know get justified is by things like social Darwinism and just you know eugenics that there's a, a place for man to be deciding these type of things and so we come into another character that's already been discussed here in this episode would be Thomas Malthus and he was a professor of history and political economy at the East India Company's College at Halleberry near Hartford, England. And Malthus, along with Spencer, influenced the ideas behind what we know as social Darwinism. Malthus influenced Darwin's theories on natural selection. And here we have a quote from Thomas Malthus on an essay of Principle of Population. And here he says, Instead of recommending cleanliness to the poor, we should encourage contrary habits. In our towns, we should make the streets narrower, crowd more people into the houses, and court the return of the plague. But above all, we should reprobate specific remedies for ravaging diseases, and those benevolent but much mistaken men who have thought that they were doing service to mankind by projecting schemes for total extirpation of particular disorders, if by these and familiar means the annual morality were increased, we might probably even one of us marry at the age of puberty, and yet few be absolutely starved. So that's kind of some of the beginning worldview there that influenced Charles Darwin, that quote from Thomas Malthus and the Principle of Population. And then to lead into the next character that I have here to discuss would be Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell is an elitist, was an elitist, third Earl Russell, known as, and was um, alive from 1872 to 1970. He's a British polymath, Nobel Prize winner, and he worked a lot with the education of young children and was even an award winner from um, from the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. He was uh, a eugenicist, highly respected man by the excessively rich, dominant minority groups. Um, he's obsessed with studying human behavior to better utilize human resources and this led him into publishing an insightful but troublesome realities on human psychology. And we're going to read that here from his book from 1951, The Impact on Science and Society. And this is, again, Bertrand Russell. At present, the population of the world is increasing at about 58,000 per diem. War, so far, has no great effect on this increase, which continued throughout each of the world wars. What, then, should we do? Apart from deep seated prejudices, the answer would be obvious. The nations which at present increase rapidly should be encouraged to adopt the methods by which, in the West, the increase of population has been checked. Educational propaganda with government help could achieve this result in a generation. There are, however, two powerful forces opposed to such a policy. One is religion, the other is nationalism. I think it is the duty of all who are capable of facing facts to realize and to proclaim that opposition to the spread of birth control, if successful, 
must inflict upon mankind the most appalling depth of misery and degradation, and that within another 50 years or so. So taking a break from that reading would be just kind of seeing this narrow-minded worldview of, you know, scarcity and, you know, so concerned about the growth of the population. And in my opinion, just not having the imagination to see what human um, inventiveness can provide and where and what we're doing here on this planet and where we're headed. I mean, because, in, again, I see this as being a, just a completely narrow way of looking at the world to think that we need to deploy, you know, mass sterilization and mass birth control as a solution to the issues that we're facing and not looking at the predatory ruling class and the chaos that they're causing on the planet. Okay, so back to the reading. I do not pretend that birth control is the only way in which population be can be kept from increasing. There are others which one must suppose opponents of birth control would prefer. War, as I remarked a moment ago, has hitherto been disappointing in, the respect, in this respect, but perhaps bacteriological war may prove more effective. If a black death could be spread throughout the world, once in every generation, survivors could procreate freely without making the world too full. There would be nothing in this to offend the consciousness of the devout or to restrain the ambitions of the nationalists. The state of affairs might be somewhat unpleasant, but what of that? Really, high-minded people are indifferent to happiness, especially other people's. <laughs> oh my. So again, we just see this kind of worldview, and if, you know, these are where the ideas of that are carrying, were being carried out today are coming from. People reading this type of material who are still living in this social Darwinian worldview are operating off of this type of thinking. Okay. And so to continue that quote and finish it, um, again, from the 1951 book, The Impact of Science on Society by Bertrand Russell. There are three ways of securing a society that shall be stable as regards population. The first is that of birth control. The second, that of infanticide, or really destructive wars. And the third, that of generational misery, except for a powerful minority. Of these three, only birth control avoids extreme cruelty and unhappiness for the majority of human beings. Meanwhile, so long as there is a, not a single world government, there will be a competition for power among the different nations. And as increase of population brings the threat of famine, national power will become more and more obviously the only way of avoiding starvation. There will therefore be blocks in which the hungry nations band together against those that are well fed. That is the explanation of the victory of communism in China. These considerations prove that a scientific world society cannot be stable unless there is a world government. So not only is he a proponent of depopulation by means of negative eugenics and other ways of causing reduction in population such as war which he's disappointed that it hasn't been more effective and infanticide is another thing being promoted um also 
thinks that we must have a world government in order to control everyone's lives and make sure that everything's under control. So, of course, you know, as we'll see a pattern here with eugenics, uh, eugenicists, social Darwinism, and psychopaths is the theme of one world government and largely we're already living in that world. It just hasn't been flashed on your uh, mainstream news headlines. So Bertrand Russell was also briefly a member of the Fabian Society. And the Fabian Society was a British socialist organization. It's a think tank organization. So it's and it was founded on January 4th of 1884. And this type of think tank organization was created to become politically involved to transforming society and to push Fabian socialism. And the name Fabian Society, it was named after the Roman general Fabius Maximus, or the Delayer. And this general was known for his strategy in gradually wearing down the enemy and not fighting directly. So we have a socialist organization whose strategy is to not take on whoever they're opposing directly and to be more like Fabius Maximus and going and like taking on the supply lines or attacking, you know, surprise smaller groups and not the full army that you're up against. Um, tactics such as wearing the enemy down slowly rather than taking them head on. And it's effective, and that's why they named their organization after him. And their coat of arms, original coat of arms, was a wolf in sheep's clothing, literally. And you can just go to their Wikipedia page and see the original coat of arms being a wolf in sheep's clothing. And the logo of the Fabian Society is a tortoise. So we have tortoise symbolism, uh, you know, being the kind of like the tortoise in the hare, the slow but sure wins the race, and wolf in sheep's clothing. So we have this strange socialist organization who has these three things right out there in your face um, as far as how, what their goals are and how they're operating. And prominent members of the Fabian Society would be people like George Bernard Shaw, Annie Bizant, Graham Wallace, Charles Marson, Sidney Oliver, Oliver Lodge, Ramsay MacDonald, and Emmeline Pankhurst, and then obviously Bertrand Russell, as I mentioned, was a brief member of the Fabian Society, and then Sidney and Beatrice Webb were leaders of the Fabian Society, and those two as well as other members of the Fabian Society went on to help create the British Labour Party in London, which is still operating, heavy influential party in London, and also they went on to create the London School of Economics, another influential think tank. So just kind of remember that wolf in sheep's clothing and tortoise symbolism and the Fabius Maximus battle strategy as well as, you know, what the reason for discussing those types of tactics, you know, the wolf, wolf in sheep's clothing, the tortoise, the battle strategies of Fabius, are to point out the difference between that and more of like a Stalinist or Mao Zedong type of overt 
you know, communism, socialism, and depopulation agenda, because the wolf in sheep's clothing tortoise symbolism might be more like the boiling the frog strategy, where you put a a frog, if you were to throw him into boiling water, he would jump out, but you put him into lukewarm water, turn up the heat slowly, and you got a cooked frog, and he didn't even see it coming. That's kind of the Fabian strategy, rather than be so overt about it, such as like the Nazis or a Mao's China. As early as 1909, the Fabians led by Webb said, What we as eugenicists have got to do is scrap the old poor laws, with its indiscriminate relief of the destitute as such, and replace it by an intelligent policy of so altering the social environment as to discourage or prevent the multiplication of those irrevocably below the national minimum of fitness. And in 1930, we had a Fabian leader, Archibald Church, introduce a bill for eugenics sterilization. So we can see these organizations out there in the open. Um, And then we also have many secret societies Again, these think tank organizations, governmental organizations, and non-governmental organizations talking about population control, sustainability. We have the Rockefeller Foundation. We have Skull and Bones. We have the United Nations. Again, the Fabians. And why, you know, why a wolf in sheep's clothing? What is that all about with the Fabian Society? Are we, are we facing a wolf? And you know, they're talking about this master race and funding the rise of Hitler as we can now look back at history with our um, hindsight and objectivism and see that, you know, the rise of the Nazis was not just a German thing. This was a eugenics operation um, heavily funded by American entities, Wall Street, and also British entities and we can look at the work of people like Anthony C. Sutton um, with Wall Street and the rise of Hitler. You know we now have well-documented evidence of you know the Nazis just being a more overt form of what we see with the Fabians and what we see in America as well which We don't have time to go into in this episode with all the different organizations operating within the United States and really the form and um, foundation and more uh, heavily influential figures for eugenics coming out of America, probably more so than anywhere else in the world around that time of the history, um, like World War II era. But we will go into that, and in the next episode, most likely, that topic will be covered. So, really, I mean, this is all just being dressed up as a good thing, but it's another way for the the elites and the ruthless to claim the top of the pyramid is by this talking about eugenics, and you don't have to look very far back in history to see open discussion about it in, um, in media and literature and prominent figures in society standing behind forms of eugenics such as even operations that were carried out in Germany um, and standing behind these types of things.
next, I have a quote from Margaret Sanger here who says, Our failure to segregate morons who are increasing and multiplying demonstrates our foolhardy and extravagant sentimentalism. Philanthropists encourage the healthier and more normal sections of the world to shoulder the burden of unthinking and indiscriminate fasudity of others, which brings with it, as I think the reader must agree, the dead weight of human waste. Instead of decreasing and aiming to eliminate the stocks that are most detrimental to the future of the race and this world, it tends to render them to a menacing degree dominant. We are paying for and even submitting to the dictates of an ever-increasing, unceasingly spawning class of human beings who never should have been born at all. Margaret Sanger from The Pivot of Civilization in 1922. Isn't that just a beautiful worldview there? And as mentioned earlier, one of the more out there even you know going so far as to publish their plans and agendas would be the United Nations when it comes to practicing depopulation and having an agenda to depopulize the world and from that we have a quote here from Jacques Cousteau who says and you know he was a consultant to the United Nations and the World Bank says the United Nations goal is to reduce the population selectively by encouraging abortion, forced sterilization, and human reproduction, and regards two-thirds of the human population as excess baggage, with 350,000 people to be eliminated per day, was their stated goal. And also, you know, we have UN Agenda 21, and their sustainable development plans and pretty terms like population stabilization or population control. And the UN has, like I said, openly published documentation on reducing the population. And through things like Agenda 21, we can start to see some of the effects of that taking place. Sir Julian Huxley from UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, from its purposes and philosophy, says, The political unification in some sort of world government will be required, even though any radical eugenic policy will be for many years politically and psychologically impossible. It will be important for UNESCO to see that the eugenic problem is examined with great care and that the public mind is informed of the issue at stake so that much of the now which is unthinkable may become thinkable. So his problem that he's discussing there is that they can't more openly practice eugenics. He's not saying that eugenics is a problem. He, he has an issue with them not being able to more openly practice it. <laughs> so, um, leading into more current current times, trying to kind of build a ladder from somewhat of a historical view of this up to now, we're going to end this episode with a discussion on John Holdren, and he is the current senior advisor to Obama. He is the assistant 
to the President of Science and Technology, Director of the White House of Office and Science and Technology Policy. He is the co-chair of the President Council on Advisors and, and Science and Technology. He's also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, which is a globalist think tank organization that was established um, after World War I in an attempt to rectify the problem of America not adopting the League of Nations agenda and the global government um, road to hell that we're living in now. Um, the United or the Council on Foreign Relations was created to try to convince the American people that they would benefit from joining in with an United Nations type organizations, with, which it eventually did after World War II. And Holdren is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, which, as we'll see, is an organization who is basically the one of the first layers that you get to see in what would be considered a shadow government running the American government. And with its sister organization, the Royal Institute of in International Affairs, being operated out of London. And these organizations' agenda for globalism and pushing collectivism onto us. So Holdren is also a member of several other scientism organizations. You know, the scientism, the people who are using scientism to justify their sick, disgusting, psychopathic worldviews. But I am differentiating between scientism and science, obviously, science is a good thing, but I'm talking about the, you know, unquestioning belief in all that science produces and using science as a religion, hence the scientism, because it's just another ism and it's another worldview trap that can be fallen into. But I'm going to let Webster Tarpley step in here and come in for the win uh, to discuss Holdren. Webster Tarpley is an author, historian, journalist, and lecturer of U.S. foreign and domestic policy. And the audio that I'm going to be playing here to end this episode is from his work with InfoWars. Um, and there's an article that I'll link to as well titled The Elite's Plan for Global Extermination Exposed. And, you know, I don't have to agree with everything that I present here on the Creature of Control podcast series or any information that uses other people to provide context in within the Stones media productions. But that's also the job of the listener to objectively listen, take in the grammar and process it logically before continuing with the rhetoric downstream um, that's my job always, and that's your job and responsibility always, and all I'm trying to do is present the information in a interesting and creative way so that it can be understood more widely. And we're painting a picture here, you know, we're painting a tapestry, we're trying to do a high-level overview for the more holistic thinking of, of the listeners to be able to see how it kind of ties in and for a lot of people the information being presented won't be the first time they've heard it here and it'll maybe just be a different take on what they've already discovered 
and for other people we could even be opening up doors that they haven't looked into yet and that either way it's good either way and i appreciate anyone who's made it this far and listened into this level of episode two also heard in this episode from the social engineering documentary we heard some behaviorism being discussed we're definitely going to get more into behaviorism as the creature of control podcast series goes on but i felt like some of that audio was a good introduction into behaviorism and i feel like that ties into social darwinism because you know theorizing and studying human behavior and human evolution is one thing but and there you know that's neither good or bad objectively speaking but when we're talking about using these things to justify like actually controlling other people then that's an entirely different thing so using social darwinism to justify using behaviorism techniques to control people is the connection i'm making here so you know, we, we heard about Watson, Skinner, Pavlov, and others, and they will all be discussed more in depth in future episodes, that's for sure. Those are all behaviorists, by the way. And we'll unpack that later. We also heard a little bit about the Rockefeller Foundation and its funding in social science research and the Rockefellers attempting to change society using their foundation and this will continue also in further episodes and we'll tie that in deeper and discuss how that ties in with the creature of control and also we heard some mention of project mk ultra the cia project mk ultra which is an extension from Uh, research done by the Nazi scientists on more of this type of like human behavior and social control and how the Nazis were brought over from Nazi scientists brought over by Operation Paperclip. That can be looked into if you'd like to in the meantime, but it will also be presented later in the Creature of Control podcast series. Just wanted to mention that since it was already mentioned in the clips from before. Again, thank you for listening this far. And this is going to be an evolving podcast and an evolving project, and I appreciate you for sticking around. And now I'd like to read a quote from one of my favorite books, The End of All Evil by Jeremy Locke. There is no proper role for tyranny in the lives of people. As soon as you yield to the forces of compulsion in the name of life, you have lost your life, for it belongs to those who control you. Life is liberty. Without liberty, your life belongs to another. Liberty is to be defended at all costs and at all times. Govern yourself, for this is the nature of an individual. You and you alone control your actions and your mind. This is right, proper, and good. You have a responsibility to defend your liberty at all times. If you do not, it will be destroyed. To yield defense in your liberty to another is an absolute invitation to tyranny. Personal sovereignty is the end of evil. When every person on earth will defend themselves and those they love, when evil cannot gain even a foothold because of all people are watching for it and recognize that it seeks to destroy their value, this is the exact opposite of perfect evil, in which every person 
is a slave and a master of slaves. Perfect liberty is life, and in it there are no slaves and no masters of slaves. Perfect liberty is life. Again, thank you for listening to episode two of the Creature of Control podcast series. And now I'll leave you off with this discussion by Webster Tarpley. Thank you. Today, I'm pleased to announce members of my science and technology team. Dr. John Holdren has agreed to serve as assistant to the president for science and technology and director of the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. John P. Holdren is the resident science czar of the Obama White House. He's the head of the White House Council on Science and Technology, key advisor operating out of the new executive office building in Washington, D.C. This man is a Malthusian fanatic. He's a follower of Bentham and Malthus and Darwin. In other words, the main philosophers of the British Empire in the 19th century and the fountainhead of reactionary and anti-human ideology in that time frame. He's a radical environmentalist, an ecological fanatic, a green kook, uh, a wacko, except that it's also very sinister because the implications of his belief structure and his world outlook are genocide. Uh, He is in particular, an enemy of the traditional American point of view on the world. Uh, Holdren polemicizes in his books against people he calls the cornucopians, people who think that the bounty of nature and of production is unlimited. He says that's, that's not true. There are limits to growth, and we have to live within those limits. He polemicizes against growthsmanship, that you can grow your way out of a crisis. According to Holdman, that door has been permanently closed on all of us. And in particular, he says he hates the moonshot mentality of the average American. And that is to say, with the right kind of national mobilization, technology, and political will, you can do just about anything, including putting a man on the moon or putting uh, other uh, people out into, into space. So. Holdren is anti-American in this deep way. He is a pessimist uh, culturally and historically. He calls himself a neo-Malthusianism. Now, the heart of his outlook is what he calls, uh, well, he says that population is the root of all human problems. In other words, people pollute. Humanity is a cancer on the face of the earth. The one big problem in the ecosystem is the role of of humankind. And of course, in reality, the existing ecosystem could not survive without the constant contributions of human production. It's very easy to to show that. Uh, Holdren started off in the 1970s with uh, Paul Ehrlich, who was a charlatan and an obscurantist uh, and a crackpot who wrote the book The Population Bomb. Uh, Ehrlich was convinced that world population was growing out of control and that this was going to lead to a breakdown of human civilization sometime in the late 20th century. And it goes together with the campaign of the limits of growth, the Club of Rome, Aurelio Pache, and the rest of these people. This is kind of the, uh, 
the intellectual milieu that Holdren comes out of. Now, there was no population bomb. It's just not true. Uh, it never happened. Uh, population in Europe is falling. If you just look at the uh, self-renewal of these populations, same thing in Japan, same thing in Russia. They've all got a demographic problem, which has nothing to do with overpopulation. It has to do with shrinking population. China has demographic problems that were caused by going along with this two-child-per-family uh, policy. Uh, the U.S. would be experiencing demographic decline if it weren't for the uh, flow of immigrants into the country. So there never was a population bomb. But Holdren does not revise or change his pseudoscientific uh, outlook because of this. Population is the problem. Now, he looks around the world, writing in the early 1970s in one of his textbooks, and he says, some countries have so much population that they ought to be triaged. We should cut them off, give them no more food aid, no more credit, no more help of any kind. Well, what are the countries? He says, India is probably on the list. India, hundreds and hundreds of millions of people. And Holdren says, cast them into the outer darkness. Then Bangladesh, with a couple of hundred million people, Holdren says, for sure, Bangladesh has got to be triaged. Give them nothing. Now, again, the note of genocide, the idea that whole countries should be consigned to doom puts Holdren in a league which is far beyond Hitler in terms of the number of victims that these policies would uh, result in. He hates science and technology. Uh, he wants to limit science and technology. He regards them as a threat to what he thinks of as the social order and also to the crackpot views of charlatans and, uh, and, uh, and fakers like himself. He says he wants to create a science court that would decide which inventions could be put into practice and which would have to be banned. This is unbelievable. This would essentially strangle the source of human progress and consign us all into a, a stagnation and, uh, and ruin, which would would never end. Holdren believes that there's a world optimum population or carrying capacity. Now, the idea of carrying capacity comes from the writings of a Venetian kook by the name of Gian Maria Ortes, O-R-T-E-S, writing in 1790 or thereabouts. Ortes said that the limit of the world population was three billion people and that if you went beyond that you'd have famine and starvation and death, and it would always tend back to three billion people. Now, Holdren is even worse. He's more genocidal than Gian Maria Ortes. He's more genocidal than Malthus, who followed in the footsteps of Ortes. Holdren says that the optimum world population is one billion. Now, let's pause. At the time Holdren wrote that, the world population was already 4 billion. Today, if you say the optimum population is 1 billion, it would mean that more than 5 billion would have to go. And again, these are orders of magnitude that Hitler, Stalin, and Mao never dreamed of. Only in the mind of fanatics like Holdren do we get genocide of these proportions. Holdren says that the big task of policy, and here the third world and developing countries should take note. He says the main political problem facing the world is not world economic development, but stopping world economic development. He's very worried 
that countries like China and India and others, Latin America, South Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, that they're going to try to imitate the development of the U.S., Europe, and Japan. And Holdren says that would be catastrophic. What we need is to stop third world development. We've got to convince the third world not to do that. And we've got to institute de-development worldwide. In other words, turn back the clock of history, roll back progress, and go back to what amounts to pre-industrial civilization. Well, pre-industrial civilization is a lifespan of 30 to 35 years, nasty, brutish, and short, as Hobbes put it. So that's, that's what Holdren wants for you and your family. In order to enforce this, he talks about a supranational monstrosity that he calls a planetary regime. This means a world empire, a supranational, one world government that would attempt to control all details of human life. Would start with what he calls the global commons. That is to say, anything that impacts the air, the soil, and the oceans would become the subject of international, supranational intervention. It would be like the IMF on steroids. Instead of just economic life, it would extend to everything. Again, the temperature in your living room, the kind of car you have, the amount you get to eat, whether you have a pet, I mean, minimal details about your everyday life. For individual countries such as the U.S., Holdren recommends a population law which would fix the outer limits of the acceptable population. And again, what happens if you are surplus? What happens if you are declared a useful leader? He doesn't say that so explicitly, but it's clear that you wouldn't fare very well. So one of the features of a population law, in Holdren's point of view, is to regulate the size of the family. And this is what, of course, China did in the post-Mao period, uh, the two-child-per-family policy. So the hand of the totalitarian state intervenes in the most intimate decisions of the family and uh, the realm of individual responsibility pretty much ceases to exist. Now, Holdren is willing to do just about anything to, first of all, slow the rate of population increase. That's his first goal. Secondly, to bring population into stasis or equilibrium, zero growth, but then to turn it back and have a decreasing, diminishing world population. The Chinese experience is if you do that, you're, you're flirting with economic collapse, but Holdren doesn't care about that. He's, of course, a fanatic. So what is he willing to do? He talks about all kinds of forced sterilization, that um, you can have surgical interventions on males. Uh, in India, he says, there was a policy of obligatory vasectomy once you had two children in the family if you were a government employee. He says that's something we could think about imitating. Compulsory abortion. Think about that. Uh, that would be something that was flirted with in, in post-Maoist China. He wants to have licenses for birth. In other words, a woman is not allowed to give birth unless she's purchased a marketable birth license. And of course, what happens if Goldman Sachs comes in and because women are going to want those, drives up the price a uh, hundred times so that nobody can afford a birth permit? And what happens to people that are born illegitimately, meaning without a birth permit? 
He wants to have uh, things that have been done in the meantime. Norplant, I think, is an example. Uh, subcutaneous uh, chemical devices that are put into the flesh of women to prevent them from conceiving. So forced sterilization, compulsory abortion, forced vasectomy, birth licenses, subcutaneous implants, all kinds of uh, compulsory, obligatory methods. Um, in terms of forced sterilizations, he says you could do this by putting chemicals in food and water, but he thinks that these other methods would be more effective. He also has other methods of uh, persuasion, which are really coercion, that if you have more than two kids in the family, there's no more free public education for you. The third kid has to pay to go to the public school. If you're living in public housing, which is the case in some countries, uh, the third kid gets you kicked out of the public housing and you become homeless. He's also in favor of violating the family by seizing babies. He says that if it's a teenager or a minor who has had an illegitimate child and there's no husband in the picture, then the government should come in and seize that child and have a policy of forced adoption to, uh, to take care of that illegitimate uh, child. You can see that Holdren is a collectivist. He is not a collectivist of the Marxist uh, type, however. I would call him a collectivist in the tradition of Rousseau for two reasons. Uh, remember, there are two Rousseaus. One is the Rousseau who says that the noble savage is the goal of human life. In other words, the more primitive you are, the less civilization you have, the better you are. Uh, just if you think about that, Rousseau on that basis is one of the most influential philosophers of the current time because it basically says primitive societies are better than corrupt uh, modern society, so we should go back to nature and go back to the ways of these uh, uh, underdeveloped peoples. But then there's the other side of Rousseau, which is the collective will. The late Rousseau writes about the collective will and that the individual counts nothing compared to the collective will. This is essentially the philosophy of the reign of terror in the French Revolution, and that's pretty much where, where uh, Holdren is. So I would call him a Rousseauvian fanatic in addition to being a Malthusian and a Darwinist and a Benthamite, and he wants to have the noble savage roll back civilization, go back to pre-industrial uh, civilization, or call it civilization if you want to, and at the same time he wants to impose the collective will. He even writes about infanticide. He says that infanticide is found in many primitive peoples. And he says, well, uh, what that means is that these societies thought that the survival of the group and the collectivity was more important than the individual, so they didn't hesitate to kill babies, uh, which implies Holdren's idea of civilization. It's a form of barbarity. Again, in Holdren's world, there are two main evils. One is overpopulation, the other is industrial pollution. In the world we live in, the main problem is poverty, ignorance, disease, backwardness, illiteracy, and the rest. The main problem of today's world is a massive underproduction of most of the worldly goods that humans need. Food, clothing, shelter, transportation, jobs, housing, health care, all the rest. All of that is lacking. One billion people in the world we live in are on the verge of starvation because of the world food market situation and the fact that we have almost no food stocks left anywhere in the world. You've also got about two to three billion people right now 
who are living under one euro per day, under about a dollar and a half or two dollars. So Holdren looks at that world and says, the reason for poverty is overpopulation. I would say no. The reason for poverty is underproduction of all the main things. Question for Holdren. If you have a bunch of people and you want to give them all a hat and there are not enough hats to go around, what do you do? I say, manufacture more hats. Holdren says, start cutting off heads. That's Holdren. In being a follower of Bentham and Malthus and Darwin, in this administration of fanatics, Holdren is joined by others. Let's look at Cass Sunstein, who is the regulations czar. Sunstein is the pioneer of what is called behaviorist economics. He wants to nudge you or convince you to do certain things. The problem is the nudge is not a friendly nudge. The nudge is going to become a cattle prod, and then it's become a bayonet, and then it's become a machine gun, and God knows what else. That's Cass Sunstein. He's a former law professor from the University of Chicago. Now, he quotes Bentham all the time. Sunstein is a guy who says that animals should have legal rights, including the right to be represented by lawyers in a court. Now, Sunstein, by most people's uh, standards, would be quite extreme. But in the Obama administration, Sunstein is a moderate. Sunstein wants to give legal rights to animals. Holdren wants to give legal rights to trees so that they could be represented by lawyers and they could block development projects because you need more trees. Well, again, I'm all for trees. You want more trees, plant them. During the New Deal, we had something called the Shelter Belt that planted a couple of hundred million trees across the midsection of the United States as an attempt to make the climate better. It was an attempt to deal with the Oklahoma Dust Bowl of the 1930s. The way you do that is to plant trees. Trees are fine, but again, uh, with Holdren, we're going to have trees represented by lawyers stopping uh, human needs from being realized. Generally speaking, the, uh, the Malthusian, zero-growth, radical environmentalist, ecological extremist movement of the late 60s and early 70s is the precursor that prepares the ground for the radical deindustrialization of the United States in the late 70s and then into the 80s, the so-called Great U-Turn, where the U.S. goes from being an industrial power to being a post-industrial uh, rubble heap. Uh, key moment is 1968 with uh, the foundation of the Club of Rome, Aurelio Pache and Alexander King. Alexander King once admitted that the whole purpose of the ecological movement was to stop the economic development of the third world and make sure that there would be fewer brown and black people in the world because this was a problem for the Anglo-Saxon master race, the way he looked at it. 1972, you've got this tremendous work of charlatans and crackpots, Meadows and Forrester, The Limits to Growth, which was that the world really should have ended already because the uh, raw materials are being exhausted at such a rapid rate. So out of that, you get the green movement, the greening of America, and the coming of something that you didn't have before, was a mass constituency for radical environmentalists. Uh, in particular, Malthus used to be a dirty word among leftists because he was considered a British imperialist. Uh, Marx and Engels had to attack Malthus because otherwise they couldn't function uh, in uh, progressive circles. But by the 1970s, thanks to this Malthus and Darwin, 
become good guys when, of course, they're really uh, very bad and both charlatans and crackpots. So that's sort of the, the preparation. You've also got people saying that a service economy is better, the so-called Triple Revolution Committee. You've got the government of Edward Heath in Britain and uh, Harold Wilson of the Labor Party saying quality of life is more important than production. All of these are ways to begin arguing the idea of deindustrialization. The way you get it, though, big time in the U.S. is Paul Adolph Volcker of the Trilateral Commission, appointed by Jimmy Carter of the Trilateral Commission. Uh, and what Volcker then does is gets the Federal Reserve and he raises interest rates to unprecedented levels, a 22% prime rate, meaning that for most people the interest rates were 30% or even more, and that's for mortgages, for uh, for various kinds of business financing and so forth. What Volcker was able to do was to essentially destroy the industrial base of the United States. Uh, it became impossible to produce with credit costing that much. Um, some people compared this to, uh, to Keynes, right? Keynes said, well, let's have uh, inflation as a cure for depression. And Volcker came back with, no, let's have depression as a cure for inflation. And that's pretty much what he did. He pitched the United States into an industrial depression, which has never ended, uh, wiped out large parts of basic industry, steel mills, chemical, rubber, uh, and all the rest. This is where the jobs went. If you remember Obama's bitter clinger quote, he says, 30 years ago, the jobs went away. And now we have these bitter people clinging to God and guns and anti-trade. Well, how did those jobs go away? That was Volcker. The industrial uh, base of the U.S. was gutted and destroyed by Volcker. And with the environmentalists there, this could be greeted as something good. The, the resistance to this in the Democratic Party was paralyzed because, well, it's a good thing after all. We won't have any more smokestacks. Well, instead of smokestacks, you're going to have... Uh, a declining standard of living, and this is what goes together with it. Since about 1967, the U.S. standard of living has declined by two-thirds, and that includes uh, average hourly earnings. It includes the fact that uh, the usual measures of inflation don't tell you how much inflation has been. Uh, it's much more because you have to include medical care, insurance, and other things that are not really reflected in the market basket. You're working about six weeks more per year. So you've got a longer work day, a longer work week, and a longer work year. Vacations shrink, and the work year is extended by about six weeks altogether. The other thing that you've got is your commute is much further, and you're sitting in traffic for a total of about two to three weeks just sitting there, in addition to whatever the length of your commute would be. If you add all of that together, in terms of the burden of economic life on the average standard of living and quality of life, you will find that the U.S. standard of living has indeed declined by two-thirds. You can look on shadow government statistics. Their index confirms my finding. It goes from about 300 in the late 60s, early 70s to about 100 today, meaning you've lost two-thirds of your standard of living. So deindustrialization leads to immiseration. It means that the middle-class standard of living is destroyed. You've also got more people working. It's not enough for the husband to work. The wife has to work. The kids have to work. The husband has to work two jobs, the wife two jobs, and all this that everybody knows about. So that is what deindustrialization has done. 
And that would have been difficult to do without the ideological preparation of green fanatics like Holdren, Ehrlich, Paddock, um, Meadows and Forrester, the Club of Rome, and collected uh, charlatans and extremists of the 1960s into the 1970s. The disease that we're talking about is uh, not limited to the U.S. Actually, it, it it's really originates in, in Great Britain with, uh, with these people like Bentham and Malthus and Darwin. Uh, one of Gordon Brown's aides was recently so indiscreet as to say that they were talking about cutting the population of the British Isles by 30 million people. Now, that's way more than Hitler could have accomplished. Uh, and what it shows, again, is the anti-human fanaticism, the genocidal fury of the Anglo-American ruling elite, that they hate people and they're determined to exterminate people, and that's what they're into. And uh, if you want to live with a ruling class like that, uh, it's going to be nasty, brutish, and short. The origins of, of uh, eugenics, uh, racist thinking, race science in the U.S. go back in particular to the Harriman family. Averill Harriman was the son of, uh, of Harriman, the railroad builder, who had been attacked publicly by Theodore Roosevelt as a robber baron, as a public menace. So Harriman, as a parvenu, knew money, who had to go to Oxford and uh, talk to old money. He had a tremendous identity crisis and sense of personal insecurity. So what he wanted to do was to create himself a wonderful race pedigree that he too was part of the Anglo-Saxon master race. So his wife contributed to this famous gathering at the American Museum of Natural History, which was attended by Nazis as well as British and other race scientists, meaning charlatans and, uh, and proto-genocidalists, who came together with the idea of improving the race. So U.S. states got into the business of sterilizing people, denying marriage licenses, you have these stories, the Kalakaks and the Jukes in New York State and similar things. The Nazis actually said the U.S. has beaten us to the punch in terms of, of eugenics measures. Uh, so in, in some ways they were actually following in the footsteps of what Harriman and this faction had done in the United States. Now, Bush the Elder, in his first congressional term when he was representing River Oaks, Houston, Texas, uh, elected in uh, 1966. It was a, a district that had to be tailor-made, designed for him uh, as part of a redistricting so he could finally get elected after he failed to get into the Senate from Texas against Yarborough in 1964. Bush became the champion of eugenics. He brought in Shockley, Herrenstein, and these other uh, fanatics, right? The, the sort of bell curve school, uh, the precursors of, of that. In other words, uh, people who talk about racial inferiority of the non-white races and, and things of this sort. Uh, these people were uh, outside the boundaries of respectability because of the backlash against the Nazis. But Bush the elder did everything he could to make them respectable. He brought them to Congress. He let them lecture groups of members of the House and so forth. So much so that uh, Wilbur Mills, the head of one of the, one of the key House committees at the time, co coined the term Rubber's Bush, that uh, George Bush the Elder was so interested in contraception for the lower orders that, uh, that he was Rubber's Bush. Now, the idea of that, I think, with Bush the Elder was he believes in the Anglo-Saxon master race. The problem is if you believe in that, you got a problem of numbers because there are so many other people who are not part of this. So what are you going to do? You've got to do something to, to limit 
the population growth uh, and probably turn it around among the non-white populations in particular. So I think that is the one thing that Bush the Elder actually believes in as a fixed point of ideology. John P. Holdren, the current Obama population czar, John P. Holdren, the White House science czar, is very much in the tradition of this Harriman eugenics movement, uh, which was rubbing elbows with the Nazis in the 20s and 30s. Things like compulsory abortion, compulsory sterilization, uh, taking children away from parents, preventing marriages, marriage uh, licenses that you have to pay for, implants and other things to prevent birth. This is all in the, uh, the Nazi or quasi-Nazi tradition of the 20s and 30s. The mentality of oligarchy does not change. Um, we have to remember that uh, as long as there are human individuals, you're going to have the one, the few, and the many. There's going to be one person, small groups of people, and large masses. So this is always going to be with you. These are ontological categories of human existence. The problem you have is if you have the dictatorship of the one, that's a fairly clear-cut problem. If you have the spontaneous mob of the many, that's a problem that people can also recognize. But what you tend to have in human civilization is the rule of the few, the oligarchy, uh, the iron law of oligarchy, studied by uh, German sociologists in the late 1900s. Now, the purpose of an oligarchy is really only one thing. A tyrant can have a project. A mob can have a goal. But an oligarchy is there to do one thing, to perpetuate oligarchy, to give it more and more power and allow it to exist. The mentality of oligarchy always depends on the idea that there's an elite and a mass. And there can't be anything in between. There's really no room for a middle class in oligarchy. So the elite has to justify itself based on what? Why should they rule? Are they smarter? Are they more efficient? Are they better? They're probably none of those things. They're probably inferior in many ways. So they've got to find other ways to justify what is an irrational principle of domination. So oligarchs generally find ways to argue that the mass of people are inferior, that their lives are not worth living, and indeed that they're closer to animals than they are to the elite. So whenever you have an oligarchical elite, they're always going to try to portray the masses as ignorant beasts, inferior, or whatever else it is, and, th and that's what we see. Uh, this is very strong in the Anglo-American world. The U.S.-British tradition is not that of a dictator. Stalin, Hitler, this you generally don't find. It's also not so much in the notion of uh, mob rule and demagogy of that sort, although occasionally it is. Generally what you have in terms of real power is an oligarchy. So this oligarchy is inherited from Venice, from the Venetian Republic of the Middle Ages, and it's transferred into Britain between 1500 and 1600 or so in the form of the Whig Party, the top aristocratic party which rules Britain from uh, the early 1600s really until uh, about 1832 and the, uh, the Reform Bill. So it's an oligarchical system. The U.S. and the British are a polycentric oligarchy uh, where you can't say the Bilderberger runs it or the Trilateral or the CFR or B Bohemian Grove or whatever it is. All of those are power centers that jostle each other and coexist. But what they amount to is an oligarchy. Uh, if you have a tyrant, 
you can convince the tyrant to change policy. It can be done. But to change an oligarchy, as Plato points out, is harder because you've got to convince so many different ones, and as soon as you convince some of them, you've deconvinced others because those are the enemies, and they hate the ones that you've, you've convinced. So that's the problem that we face in the Anglo-American world. The Club of Rome is a group of old fascists, for want of a better word. Aurelio Pecce was the most prominent guy. He had been a fascist for Mussolini in the Balkans during World War II, done all manner of crimes there. And then we have his associate, Alexander King, who admitted that embarrassing thing, that the purpose of this was to express uh, the genocide of the third world. In other words, that it was designed to make sure that there would be no third world development, that therefore the black and brown people of the world would not become numerous. So the Club of Rome is already the beginning of a genocidal mentality in which Holdren and, uh, and Cass Sunstein and other people in the Obama regime participate. Naturally, as this becomes more extreme, as the breakdown crisis gets worse, and it is getting worse, as the depression deepens, you get into the definitions of useless eaters, lives not worthy of being lived, um, non-productive culls, they're called sometimes, surplus population, as Scrooge said, following Bentham and uh, and Malthus, uh, and how many are there of such people? As the depression gets worse, it gets to be more and more uh, of the population that are useless eaters and non-productive culls. So the problem that we face is uh, the ideology has deteriorated. The global warming ideology is, at least up to now, the most extreme form because it says that carbon dioxide is a pollutant and that carbon is bad when we ourselves are a carbon-based form of life. So it seems to say that the, uh, the inevitable results of humanity is pollution, that people pollute or indeed that people are pollution. It gets back to Ehrlich and Holdren and their idea that humanity is a cancer on the face of the earth. So the ultimate logic of all this is extermination, genocide, the concentration camp, depopulation, and a horror that goes beyond anything seen in the 20th century. That's where Obama is essentially leading. When Holdren is confronted with his published works, the body of work on which his scientific credentials rest, he wants to run away from them and say that he's no longer the environmental extremist that he once was, that his genocidal fury has mellowed with age. But I wouldn't believe that for a minute. It's just that he's become a little bit more sophisticated politically, and he's seen how damaging it is when, when people throw that stuff uh, at you. It's, of course, a monstrosity that he was uh, allowed to get through that uh, confirmation process in the first place. In terms of um, genocide, uh, genocide entered the U.S. policy realm in an overt way with this uh, National Security Memorandum 200 by Kissinger in the 1974-75 period, which said that if you have population growth in third world countries, they will compete for the limited natural resources that the U.S. intends to, to monopolize. Uh, I attended the food conference, the uh, World Food Conference of the Food and Agricultural Organization in Rome 
in December of 1974, uh, which was attended by Kissinger. And I put out some leaflets at this FAO conference in Rome in late 1974. And in response to that, the UN bureaucracy kicked me out of the conference, not for disrupting anything, but simply by uh, pointing out the obvious implications of what was going on. At that same conference, the Soviet delegate uh, made a useful contribution. He said that if you just took the existing off-the-shelf technology and made that available to everybody, you would have no problem with 35 billion people on the earth. The, the, the demographic potential is still very, very large, lots and lots of wide open spaces, but they kicked me out. So the Kissinger line was stop population growth in third world countries because otherwise they'll compete for natural resources. I guess he's looking into what happens today with Chinese oil consumption and the Chinese in Africa offering their own bids for uh, mining and other, other products. The other thing to stress is under Carter, and in particular under Secretary of State Edmund Muskie, you had Global 2000 and Global Futures, and that is the real watershed of making genocide population reduction, euthanasia, uh, population control into the dominant ideology of the U.S. government, the foreign policy establishment, and the State Department. Global 2000 and Global Futures enacted under Muskie are really the turning point, after which U.S. policy in the developing sector is no longer development, but it's rather population control, population reduction with strong genocidal overtones. Holdren writes books about nuclear target selection, nuclear war. He's a strange love. He's a, he's a strange love under green left cover. Uh, however, he recognizes what strange loves uh, often forget. You can kill more people with economic means than you can with, uh, with military means. Robert McNamara did his best to escalate Vietnam. Robert McNamara killed more people at the World Bank than he ever did at the Pentagon. Uh, the general estimate is well, 40,000 people a day, meaning 15, 20 million a year minimum, die as a result of the IMF conditionalities. They die of starvation, malnutrition, and diseases like diarrhea that can be cured for a few pennies. So that's the, the cost of the IMF-based system is already in the neighborhood of 20 million dead per year. And again, 40,000 40, per day and that's an old figure. Now that we have the Depression, it's probably more like 50,000 a day or, or more, because the, um, the effect of the Depression is obviously to, to increase that figure. This is a book called Ecoscience, Population, Resources, Environment. The authors, Paul R. Ehrlich of Stanford University. This is the charlatan with the population bomb. Anne H. Ehrlich, who is an environmental fanatic in her own right. And John P. Holdren of the University of California, Berkeley, today White House Science Czar for Obama, published by the W.H. Freeman and Company Publishing House in San Francisco. And the uh, edition I have here is 1977, so we're in the Jimmy Carter era. First edition, 1970. Second edition, 1972. And as you can see, this is a hefty tome. This is the best part of a thousand pages, more than a thousand pages. If you count the index, we get up to 1,500 pages of raving, insane Malthusian drivel. And he tells you he's a Malthusian, a neo-Malthusian. He loves Darwin. 
He loves the uh, struggle for existence and the survival of the fittest. And in some ways, he wants to bring that into human society. Now, the heart of the book, I think, for political purposes, has to do with the measures that Holdren proposes to implement as a means of slowing, stopping, and reversing population growth. The heart of the book, I think, starts on page 783, Population Control Direct Measures. You've got to convince people of the necessity of reducing population. For example, one thing he quotes approvingly, a case in point was the sudden imposition in 1976 of compulsory sterilization in some states in India and for government employees in Delhi following two decades of discouraging results from voluntary family planning. So let's make it involuntary, compulsory, obligatory, and we're going to come in with compulsory sterilization. Let's jump ahead to the involuntary controls. In the 1960s, it was proposed to vasectomize all fathers of three or more children in India. India entertained the policy of compulsory sterilization, and if they had really done it, then they, uh, they would have been better off, as Holdren says. A program of sterilizing women after their second or third child, despite the fact that this is harder to do than a vasectomy, might be easier to implement than sterilizing men. Uh, other than that, Holdren is interested, and again on page 787, the development of a long-term sterilizing capsule that could be implanted under the skin and removed when pregnancy is desired. Well, this is Norplant, and that's been implanted in uh, victim populations in U.S. inner cities now for a couple of decades. One of the problems is, how do you get it out? The government puts it in, but who's going to help you to take it out? Uh, that's a little bit harder. Another proposal that Holdren is interested in, he quotes the economist Kevin Balding, British, I'm pretty sure. Balding proposed to issue to each woman at maturity a marketable license that would entitle her to have a fixed number of children. And of course, again, if Goldman Sachs gets into the market, then that could be priced out of reach of poor people. He quotes social scientists who have looked into the effects of a marketable license for birth. A very interesting chart on page 788, um, baby licenses. Uh, we're told that you can have a monthly subsidy if you have no more than two children. You can have a monthly tax on people with more than two children to discourage that. A one-time lump sum tax on excess babies over two. So if you're over two children, that's excess. And quotas for families. So again, uh, the basic idea is some measures designed to persuade, and then the hardcore, hardline measures, compulsory sterilization, compulsory abortion, and it's also a good idea to take children away from mothers if they're uh, teenagers, unmarried, and otherwise not suitable. Now, he wants to impose this not just domestically in the U.S., but even more 
He wants to have family planning measures. Here on page 789, he wants to have family planning measures in the less developed countries. High priority should be given to stimulating attitude changes and counteracting the effects of pronatalist traditions. You may remember President de Gaulle of France talked about 100 million Frenchmen uh, as a national goal. Obviously, for Faldwin, this is impossible. What are the problems with this? Well, one problem is human rights, page 793. Some people have this idea that there's a fundamental human right for each person responsibly to determine the size of his or her own family. Uh, Holdren doesn't like that one. Could this be done in the U.S.? Well, we have the Constitution. Holdren laments, and now we're on page uh, 837. To date, there has been no serious attempt in Western countries... Europe, uh, U.S., Japan, to use laws to control excessive population growth, although there exists ample authority under which population growth could be regulated. For example, under the U.S. Constitution, effective population control programs could be enacted under the clauses that empower Congress to appropriate funds to provide for the general welfare and to regulate commerce so the Commerce Clause becomes abortion and sterilization. Or for the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. So the idea is strip everybody of the right to exist under the 14th Amendment. Such laws constitutionally could be very broad. Indeed, it has even been concluded that compulsory population control laws, even including laws requiring compulsory abortion, could be sustained under the existing Constitution if the population crisis became sufficiently severe to endanger the society. Few today consider the situation in the United States serious enough to justify compulsion, however, laments Holdren. The most compelling arguments that might be used to justify government regulation of reproduction are based on the rapid population growth relative to the capacity of environmental and social systems to absorb the associated impact. The appeal to greed. To provide a high quality of life for all, there must be fewer people, says Holdren. But there are other sound reasons that support the use of law to regulate reproduction. In today's world... Holdren writes on page 838, the number of children in a family is a matter of profound public concern. There is no individual uh, sphere anymore for a Malthusian fanatic. On page 850, Holdren wants to convert to a spaceman economy. This is not the moonshot anymore. This is the idea that you're on spaceship Earth and everything you have with you is a limited resource. So, what you've got to do is reduce throughput of raw materials in industrial processes. He quotes a fellow crackpot, Herman Daly, who has suggested a specific mechanism for accomplishing uh, population reduction. Put strict depletion quotas on the natural resources of the United States, meaning that you couldn't use more than 2 or 3% of the existing oil or minerals or whatever it is. The problem with that is what we've found since the publication of the Limits of Growth is that the 
available stocks of most raw materials have grown. They haven't gone down. They've gone up because you find more than you use. And that, I think, that would be even more clear if uh, this process were not sabotaged. We would want to impose restrictions on the import of manufactured goods. Well, up to a point, but not for Holdren's goals. And there's a big, big attack on the cornucopians, again on page 851. The American mentality that you can solve things through science and production uh, is something that Holdren wants to polemicize against. And that gets us then to his favorite theme, page 926, the de-development of overdeveloped countries. We've got to stop the less developed countries from imitating the growth path of the developed world. One key to saving world society lies in a measured and orderly retreat, retreat from overdevelopment in today's overdeveloped countries. That would be the U.S. A process we will label, for want of a better word, de-development. So if you thought your living standard was too low, Holdren is here to tell you, your living standard is too high. You should be de-developed. World government, international controls, the global commons. The quote here is, mutual coercion mutually agreed upon. The new world order. It has been apparent for some time that the nations of this planet cannot long survive, we read on page 939, cannot long survive without a system of worldwide controls for dealing with the ecosphere, the world economic system, and world economic growth. Such a system must be, above all, capable of resolving national differences. This is the basic conclusion of the distinguished professor of international law, Richard A. Falk, as he analyzed the situation, exemplified by the projections of alternative future scenarios. We might enter a plea here for surrendering some national sovereignty to a world government, but it's unfortunately clear that there will not be a supranational government in the foreseeable future. But now 30 years have gone by, and maybe this, was, this is within reach at the Copenhagen Conference in December of 2009. So we get the U.S. Environmental Program. And again, uh, in the conclusion, the summary of this is there are two factions on Earth. We have the cornucopians. We can call them the growthsmanship group. Uh, the moonshot mentality. Those are people who say science, technology, and industry can solve any problem with political will and the proper effort. And that's pretty much how humanity has survived up to now. But that's the wrong path, according to Holdren. We've got to become neo-Malthusians. On these points, says Holdren, we find ourselves firmly in the neo-Malthusian camp. And again, that's based on Bentham, Ortez, and it's the basis, it's in turn, of, uh, of Darwin. This is a cookbook for the extermination of humanity beyond what he thinks, because the essential predicament of humanity is realize progress or collapse. If you look in uh, historians of world history, like Toynbee, he's got a catalog of, what, 20 different world civilizations, and they've all collapsed, <laughs> except one. And generally, they've collapsed from within, and they've collapsed to a very significant degree because of thinking like this, that there's a limit to growth and that the uh, privileges of an oligarchy are more important than the standard of living and the success of the individual human family. So 
this is a cookbook for the extermination of humankind, right? Those series that you see on the History Channel. What if there were no people? Well, Holdren has been blazing that trail for quite a while. This is an ultra-Hitlerian genocidalist who's today operating out of the White House in Washington, D.C., and it's time to kick him out. Morris Strong of Canada is a British imperialist uh, functionary, uh, close to Holdren in his outlook. Uh, in, in the build-up to the 1992 United Nations Conference in Rio, uh, Morris Strong wrote that the choices between collapsing the entire industrial system of the world and the survival of, uh, of humanity and the planet. And he is in favor of collapsing the industrial system. So he put out a demagogic call to people that the task of the rest of us is to collapse the industrial system of the world. I suppose George Soros and the people at AIG and Goldman Sachs in the derivatives department were reading all that because they've certainly taken us pretty far down the road to that. If you collapse the industrial system of the world, the problem you find is that the relative potential population density of the world goes below the existing 7 billion plus people that we've got, and that overhang gets into the danger of extinction. So that's a call to genocide, again, on an ultra-Hitlerian scale, issued by Maurice Strong back in 1992. Holdren is very much in that tradition. Ehrlich and, uh, and Holdren and their ilk are crackpots, charlatans, and quackademics uh, in the sense that their method is fundamentally wrong. Um, the predicament of humanity is that at any given moment in time, with the existing technology that you have, you face a finite world of natural resources, except that what you can use as a natural resource is already defined by the technology you have. So if you expand your technological repertoire and armory through scientific discovery and technological development, you can define increasing areas of the natural world as usable natural resources. And that's what we've done up to now. If wood is not enough, get coal. If coal is not convenient, get oil. If oil is not enough, get nuclear. If nuclear has problems, get thermonuclear. Look at antimatter. Look beyond uh, and still beyond, uh, beyond a horizon that we can't even see at this point. The essential human condition is realize progress or collapse, advance in science, technology, and industry, or you will soon cease to exist. And that's the fundamental human premise that this lunatic, Malthusian, Darwinian, uh, Benthamite uh, school, Ehrlich, Holdren, and the rest of them deny. Um, the president, I think, has surrounded himself with some of the most brilliant um, choices. Dr. Holdren, I, I don't want to embarrass you, but I sometimes refer to you as walking on water.
Yeah. 